Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, as always. This is a podcast hosted by Pastor Christopher Gillespie and Pastor Donald Riley. Pastor Gillespie, otherwise known as The Predator, producer, editor, coffee roaster. What else? Hmm. Silent majority? Apparently, if you listen to our recent podcast, Father. Father, that's right. <laughs> you may have picked up on in recent podcasts that we are both fathers. Yeah. We may have dropped subtle hints. Just a few. And uh, I am the compassionate savage, Pastor Donovan Riley. This is as Lutheran as it gets, as I said, coming to you from the lower level of the Behavioral Sciences Unit at Higher Things Headquarters in London, England. Oh. It's raining like crazy here today, so it reminded me of London. Yeah. I mean, it was raining, now it's snowing, because it's spring in Minnesota. <laughs> spring therefore. in Minnesota. Uh, oh, London, England. I'm reading a, a book about... Um, uh, as if Arth, the spirit of Arthur came back and like, uh, really, yeah, and uh, so it's this like guy inhabited who, a body or just a no, spirit? No, it's this it's this conflict between the, the argument of the book. It's fiction book, but the argument of the book is that oh, it's not nonfiction. It's not like a biography. <laughs> no, and so so uh, uh, that the monarchy uh, needs to be preserved for you know for God and state. Basically, that that whole English kind of oh okay oh I don't know what you want to say that, that they're oh. It's like in the in the hymn Jerusalem that mm-hmm. that England is like God's promised land or something, right? Yeah, and the monarchy is at the center of that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So go to London. If the monarchy falls, and yeah, the Parliament is trying to you know end the monarchy. Incidentally, the mm-hmm. monarchy can end the Parliament. So uh, that works out pretty well in the end. That's an interesting thing. So we know the Pope doesn't have a true vocation, and mm. the Dalai Lama doesn't have a true vocation. Right. I've never actually thought that the royal family has a true vocation either. Yeah, I wondered about it. I mean, that's what the book kind of leads me to to question, is to say, hmm, it, where, where did the monarchy get their authority, you know? Yeah, right. It's just, it just ceded to them. I've, and I've spoken with people from even Canada about this, mm. and even people in like British Columbia are loyal to the queen and the crown. And I just, I uh, maybe because I'm from the United States, maybe because I was raised in the post-war Vietnam era where you don't trust institutions or your government. Yeah, literally the, the man. Idea of, <laughs> of, the idea that you just give people millions and millions of dollars and let them live in a palace and they do nothing for you is a very odd thing to me. Yeah. But then again, I pay taxes and I have dozens and dozens of politicians who take my money and do nothing for me also. So yeah. I, I think the the author, um, this is Stephen Lawhead. I think I mentioned him previously. Oh, really? Show. Yeah. And the book's no called kidding. Avalon. And oh, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that book. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I think he has that kind of, um, you know, golden view of of the role of a monarchy to preserve mm-hmm. um, both church and state. Um, and so maybe that's where it comes out of is the whole, you know, protector of the church. What was the title that that Henry the Eighth had? Uh, when he broke, when the Church of England broke away from Right. Rome. Yeah, that's a good question. Producer. Protector, I think. It was something protector. Protector, shepherd was a pretty common title. Yeah. So throughout he, all of history. So that, and certainly with him then, the the, the Church of England and and the monarchy became uh, Synonymous, interchangeable. Yeah. 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 Well, very interesting. That's right. I forgot about Lawhead. I haven't thought about him in a long time. So it was a, Five book series on Arthur, the Arthur um, myth, mm-hmm. and then the sixth book, I think, I think it's six, or maybe it was the fifth, whatever, just comes along and it's like, oh, as if uh, Arthur never really 
died, or at least the spirit of Arthur didn't die, and and okay. it, and it's carried on in in the true and virtuous noble uh, kings of England. Hmm. Interesting. Protector of the faith. Okay. Protector of the faith. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of Henry's titles. Given to him by the Pope. It's a Judas Priest album. Oh, so it? the Pope. That's right. The Pope gave it to him, and then. Then he broke away. <laughs> Oof, that's a good way to do it. Nice. Get the promotion, then leave. That's right. I like it. Yeah. Which is actually a nice segue into the topic of today's podcast, because we're going to be talking about actually vocation in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing a more modern, more, what do you want to say, populous text today. I guess. Than the, than the deep, deep cuts we did during Lent. But this is Albrecht Peter's Commentary on Luther's Catechisms, Volume 1, The Ten Commandments. I love this series. It is a church historian's dream. Yeah. And if you're a catechism nerd, it's really the it's the land of milk and honey. Yeah, it's There's phenomenal. so much in here. The level of scholarship oh. is so deep. Oh, it's ridiculous. And, you know, that's talking with Pastor uh, John Pless about this, Professor John Pless, Reverend Dr. John Pless. Mm. Um, Going to receive an honorary doctorate, actually, from River that's, Forest. That's right. That's right. And... Um, because he was one of the main proponents who really pushed to get this translated and published in the United States, is that in Germany, Luther's catechisms, yeah, locally they're treated like kids' books, Mm -hmm. so to speak. You know, this is confirmation material, Sunday school material. But if you look at the scholarship around the catechisms in Germany, especially in the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century, it's this. It's Albrecht Peter's five-volume commentary, Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, Sacraments. Yeah, it's super pricey. It's uh, $225 for all five volumes. Yeah. Well, like I said, buy buy them in, in installments, mm-hmm. especially if you're a catechism nerd or you're really into Luther's catechism. Or if you want to know, see, this is the great thing about Albrecht Peters as a scholar is not only does he commentate on Luther's small catechism, but he gives you the background on Every single detail of why Luther chose to write, organize, everything about Luther's catechism. And you get late medieval Roman Catholic history then because he explains to you why Luther makes certain decisions about how he writes his explanations in the catechism. He breaks down, for example, when we get to the creed, he breaks down Luther's Christology on the incarnation, two natures of Christ. Mm When you get to the sacraments, he goes through the whole late medieval practice of baptism, for example, and Luther's changes, what he retains, what he changes, and even in some cases, how others of other uh, other people, Luther's colleagues and, and other pastors and so forth, reacted to his changes. So it's a really comprehensive study, and it treats the catechism, uh, what do you want to say, with respect. Yeah, but also as a historic document, as you said. Right. Right. So, yeah. so it has a context, and there yeah. are other catechisms being written, not only by oh yeah numerous. fellow Lutheran reformers, but also then outside the Lutheran mm-hmm. Church. There's some historical catechisms, although they're very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, but bringing in uh, the development of the catechism by Luther, you know, historically yeah. within his context is mm-hmm. is really phenomenal. Well, I think uh, jumping off of that too, what Peters does for us in the present tense is he provides almost a systematic theology of Luther. Like, uh, if Luther did have a systematic theology, if Luther sat down and wrote out a systematic theology, I think what Peters has done with his five-volume commentary on the catechism would be very similar to what Luther would do if he were to sit down and actually write a comprehensive theology because it would be catechetical in nature because everything Luther did was to that end to be catechetical. 
and to teach the faith, to confess Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And so to that extent, I think that's what uh, what the commentary does is it serves to, for lack of a better term, provide a kind of systematic or dogmatic theology of the catechism for us, but as historical theology. One of the things that struck me was how he gets into the logic of the catechism, you know, the, yes. and that's related to systematic. So, so for example, uh, I think it was in the Lord's prayer moving between the fifth and sixth petition. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. how they're actually one petition logically mm-hmm. and how, mm-hmm. how Luther just drives you from uh, forgiving us for trespasses and delivering us from evil. That's, that's yeah. Right. They, right. They go together. Mm-hmm. Well, because yeah. they're wrapped up in baptism. Maybe it's not that profound, but but he, but he actually brings in Luther from all of that mm-hmm. non-translated, you know, material from the Weimar Ausgabe and whatever. Right. Well, it's profound in the sense that it helps me as a pastor explain to my children, and by mine I mean everyone at church, why we make the sign of the cross when we pray, deliver us from evil. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. And why there's no rubric, there's no red cross in the LSB, for example. But yet, historically speaking, that's when we do make the sign of the cross. When we say, you know, forgive us our trespasses. But when we get to deliver us from evil, that is a baptismal confession. Yeah. That when are we saved yeah. from the evil one, specifically in Greek? I think there's a definite article there. Right. The evil one. Yeah, and there's a long um, excursus on what, what Luther meant by yeah. evil there as well. Right, exactly. And so it is very practical in that sense that... Deliver us from evil is an abstraction. It's a philosophical <laughs> argument waiting to happen. What is evil versus the evil one? Now we're speaking specifically of Satan. Now we're speaking specifically of baptism then being delivered from the evil one. And then obviously we're speaking specifically of Christ right. and that the Christian life then is prayed within the context of Christ in me. Mm-hmm. And then also, of course, evil death. And evil death, not to be confused with the evil dead. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> happy ash wednesday one of my favorite memes <laughs> every year <laughs> comes around <laughs> two deep references for anybody under 40 won't remember uh, although i think there's a show isn't there I there is ash it. versus evil it's on netflix uh is it i uh i want to watch it i've started watching it but uh my wife is never in the mood to watch it ah uh, yes it's, it's one of the few shows she's not game for because for whatever reason she doesn't I mean, she appreciates Army of Darkness for what it is. Yeah, for what it is. That's the point. But right? she doesn't quote it endlessly like I do. <laughs> and it's one of the, like, Annie's pretty game for anything. And uh, she's a nerd in and of herself. She's a geek. But for some reason, that, the horror as comedy, like, she loves Tucker and Dale versus Evil. She likes that kind of horror comedy. Ah, I gotcha. But for some reason, she doesn't appreciate Sam Raimi's comedy. I don't know why. It's pretty dry. It, it's it's definitely dark humor, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, Dry but then again, dark. I thought Cable Guy was. I love Cable Guy. It's one of my favorite comedies ever. Never saw it actually. Really, yeah. everybody it bombed when it came out because everyone expected a Ben Stiller type of comedy, kind of slight, kind of Tropic Thunder, kind of you know Zoolander, and then this really dark comedy. Jim Carrey at that point was at the height of his career, and he had just done The Mask and Ace Ventura, so everyone expected him to be that character again. And then you get this super black comedy with him and Matthew Broderick. And it's so funny, though. It's, yeah. and, but only if you get black comedy. Like, if you don't get black comedy... Did Truman Show come after uh, that? I think Truman so. Show Maybe came after did. that. Yeah. But I think that's the thing. is like, if you don't like black comedy... It's like British comedy, right? Like, Faulty Towers. Uh-huh. Sure. 
Like there are some people I'll recommend Faulty Towers to and say, this is the funniest British comedy ever. And then they come back and say, that was, I didn't, why is, why do you think that's funny? I don't get it. He's, he's just a jerk the whole time. And I'm like, that's the humor of it is that he never gets better. Hmm. Every American show, the bad, the guy that's the jerk, the, the protagonist slash antagonist at some point in the episode or later has to get soft and, and show that he's really a nice guy at heart. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think the the Faulty Towers American version bombed, because John I think John Larroquette was oh. the star in Faulty Towers the American version mm. exactly you don't even remember it, <laughs> but uh, the reason was because at the end of the show they always made sure that he was shown to be a sympathetic character, whereas when you watch John Cleese he's never for a moment sympathetic in any way shape or form, yeah. the entire series, yeah. he's just faulty and. Everything he does is in character the whole time. And that's what makes it, to me, hilarious. Because that I like painful humor. Mm. That's why I like the Three Stooges. That's why I like Buster Keaton. Other things like that. But yet, I can appreciate why some people don't like that kind of comedy. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe that's more a confession of my own inner workings. Maybe. 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 But let's dive in. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start on page 83, see where we go from here. Mm-hmm. Page 83, Luther's understanding of the Decalogue in Albrecht Peter's Ten Commandments. Yeah. Strap in, hold on. I feel like we should have like a, this is where we have Charlton Heston's voice play kind of under our conversation. What would he be saying? Or, or well, the Ten Commandments, he'd be Moses. Oh. <laughs> or Mel Brooks in the History of the World. I bring you these 20, these Ten <laughs> Commandments. <laughs> Oh, there's a little sacrilege for you. Yeah. It's like every year my aunt would ask if I watched the Ten Commandments on TV during, of course, it's on like Good Friday or something it used to be on. And I, and my aunt Lori, God bless her. She's kind of a ditz. And I was always say, no, I, I read the book. It's better than the movie. And she goes, there's a book. <laughs> like, Lori, Lori. <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I get it. I'm such uh, a ditz. I'm like, yes, yes, you are. Oh, that's good. It's <laughs> good. So page 83, first full paragraph there. Uh, in, do we have to provide context? We'll provide context as we go. But uh, Peters is talking about Luther, commenting on Luther's understanding of the second table of the Decalogue, essentially. So we're, we're talking about the law in relation to our neighbor, mm-hmm. God's word of law as it relates to our neighbor. Mm-hmm. The inner call to loving sacrifice corresponds to, what, to that more defensive outward grip of God. God lays hold of us in the heart by means of the golden rule. Do unto others, right? Right. So God's hold on us from within is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or in the rabbinic tradition, don't do anything to anybody that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Right. It's like an inversion, which is really cool about... Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah. And I like that about... I appreciate that about the rabbinic styles, that they'll take something and invert it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, a mnemonic device. Or like I recently learned studying some some rabbinic commentary what they do like with the 10 commandments is they would they would do couplets so it would be commandment 10 and commandment one ah okay and then they would show how the craving of the heart then leads us to want to stand in the place of god Mm -hmm. that that this is the interesting thing in rabbinic tradition is that coveting also extends of course into the first table of the law and that what we actually covet about god (laughs) is his godness Mm. Or they would choose, like you said, the fifth and the sixth commandment, but then couple that with the third commandment. Ah, right. And how murderous thoughts will interfere with us um, 
regarding the Sabbath as a holy day or a festival day. Mm. And, it's a, and I've actually started using that then in Bible studies and even in confirmation to teach how the Ten Commandments, for example, or the law works in such a way and how sin uses the law, a la Romans 7, how, the, how sin uses the law then to do something that seems like it's completely harmless, like tearing down, your, you know, in, gossiping about your neighbor. And how yet gossip about your neighbor can lead you to misuse God's name right. and trespass the second commandment. Because in gossiping about your neighbor, do you then start to use God's name to justify your gossip? So, so maybe say it in this way, that the, the Ten Commandments stand as a whole— you know, love right. God and love your neighbor, um, and each commandment is like a facet of that mm-hmm. of that right. whole gem. It's just it's another way of looking at it, but it also means that it's in, it interacts with all the rest of the commandments, both both upward exactly. and downward. Well, yeah. and think about it this way too. Then Romans three thirty one, faith is the fulfillment of the whole law. Mm. Therefore, to see the law in relation to how Christ has already fulfilled the law for us, and that believing in Jesus's work for us, the whole law has already been fulfilled. That the demand that we obey or that we be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, even though that word is tetelestai and it points to Good Friday. That's kind of my point, is that the the Reformed translation, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, completely erases in English the fact that Jesus is pointing to Good Friday. Ah, right. That your fa- that my Father is complete in my completion of this work that he <laughs> sent me to do. And to take out tetelestai and put in a, a philosophical term like perfection, which is used then throughout the entire New Testament, it doesn't point us back to Jesus. It points us to a philosophical concept, perfection. And then, of course, since there's no qualifications or conditions put on perfection, we then go to work. Defining it for ourselves. Defining perfection for ourselves, Mm -hmm. which leads us back to the Ten Commandments, which we then don't read in relation to Jesus doing it for us, tetelestying the Ten Commandments for us, but rather we read the Ten Commandments in terms of, well, my obedience to the Ten Commandments determines my standing, my relation to God. Oh, rather than showing us how God in Christ loves us. Right. And then that that's what instructs us in, right. in our love for neighbor, right? And by way of providing background then for this episode and this reading of Peter's, that's really the thrust of what Luther's after and what Peter's is after is when we are not faced up to Jesus and what he has done for us in terms of the law— we then take it upon ourselves to do what Jesus has already done for us by way of the law. And the problem, though, in that is when the demand is to be selfless, to love our neighbor as ourself, mm-hmm. how quickly do we use that as an opportunity to promote our own selfishness in the name of charity, in the name of ah, doing right. something to help our neighbor? Or to dismiss. Right, but that's a dangerous game to play because it's never it's never as complete <laughs> as Christ's love for us, right? Right. It's that by trying to... We, we end up annihilating our neighbor. Mm. This is the thing, is that in the name of trying to fix or help or change our neighbor for their good, of course, I'm doing this for your own good. <laughs> of course. We, we are actually seeking to annihilate our neighbor and to project ourselves into our neighbor. And that our success in relationship to our neighbor then, whether it be fixing, helping, whatever, is our success. We see this with parenting all the time. When parents, through like child's athletics, the success of the child in athletics is the success of the parent. Or band. Or band, or just choose your 
your or platform. The spelling bee. But the point is or... that what you rec- what, and you may not even be able to name it, even though you know it feels creepy and gross, or maybe you're one of those people that does that. Hmm. What you're doing or what you're seeing being done is the, the parent who is to love the child more than they love their own life is actually seeking to annihilate this person, dehumanizing them to the point where they are simply a proxy. They're an avatar hmm. for the parent, for the adult. Or a tool or right, a exactly for, for your own your own ego. right. It's like how do you judge yourself? How do you how do you figure out the meaning of your life and what your true identity is? You project yourself on other people, mm-hmm. and then based on the results, that's who you are or who you're not. Mm-hmm. I think this is why, especially in our culture, we're constantly on the one hand we're promoting hyper individualism. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Be a self made person. Mm-hmm. Go west, young man. The Horatio Alger. Right, and the whole entrepreneurial spirit. Spirit, exactly. And yet at the same time, conform, conform, adapt, conform, adapt, (laughs) fit in, arbeit, mock, fry kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, there's no backstop though. So it's just dissonance because this dichotomy, you can't be in an individual and yet be in a group. It's like we were talking about before we got on the air. It's like when you're in a relationship with someone who says, I love you for who you are as a person, but then they're constantly asking you if you would change who you are to suit their needs. Yeah, that doesn't quite work out. No, well, you end up trying to conform, trying to compromise, and it just creates more anxiety right. and more stress because that's not who you are. And you're trying to become a version of yourself that other people see you as. This is why marriages end in divorce, too. Uh, that's where I was going to go. With marriage yeah. counseling, you know, I mean, I actually made the statement yesterday that one of the purposes of, of a courtship or engagement or whatever you want to call it uh, is actually to find out if the other person is being honest with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and if you can be completely honest with them, because um, especially before you make that vow, uh, hopefully the, the major landmines you've already revealed, right. Or have right. been revealed yeah. to you. Um, so that, cause you're not going to change those things. They're going to yeah. remain there if it's a personality flaw or perceived as a flaw, or at least it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you can't live with that, then, um, don't think you're going to change it. You know, the person might mature or develop, but well, yeah. that's the problem with self annihilation mm-hmm. in relation to the command to love your neighbor and love God. I mean, and this is the thing too. Uh, we've been this, we've been on this topic quite a bit. We went through the Ten Commandments for Lent. We're recording this. Has it been two weeks since Easter now? When we're recording this? Yeah, it is. Yeah, two weeks. Yeah. So during Lent, we were going through the Ten Commandments. We had a Bible study, then we had Compline, then the the homily, the meditation was on the commandment each week. And then coming out of that, then in confirmation in an adult Bible study, we've kind of continued this conversation about love God, love your neighbor being the sum of the law. And the lawyer says, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet Jesus refuses to answer the question because it's the wrong question. And therefore, any answer he gives is the wrong answer. Uh Because the lawyer is asking on behalf of the religious leaders, how does my religion get me into heaven? How does doing Mm -hmm. something for God get me into heaven? There is no answer to that because it's the wrong question. So Jesus simply asks, what is the first and greatest commandment? Love God. And then after that, love your neighbors yourself. And what I've talked about with my own folks here and with the kids, beginning with the question, how often when we talk about the law, do we talk about obedience and not love Yeah. in the way of selflessness? And that that is to, to love selflessly in the Christian sense turns us back to Jesus because we recognize our own inability to be selfless. To talk about obedience turns us back toward ourself because yeah. there's a there's a means and a goal. Obedience. Do this and you will live. Don't do this and you will perish. And we've had this conversation the, the past several months then. 
on this topic of love God, love your neighbor is the sum of the law. And yet, as soon as we say that, we then try and even turn love into a matter of obedience. Yeah. And then we, again, try to annihilate each other. I was reading um, or reviewing some materials for a Reformation festival for a church, uh, mm-hmm. but they were they were written in a Reformed context. So it was. I just wanted to see, you know, how did you take Luther? We just want the crafts and the activities, right? But <laughs> yeah, but it's inf- interesting because they they see, at least the the writer, authors of these materials see the ninety five theses as fundamentally a Reformation document. Now, right. I think we've said on the show that maybe some of the theses, but overall, it's still a Roman document. Yeah, you know, um, and there's very thing. There's very few things in there that a late medieval Roman Catholic couldn't say yeah okay we can have a conversation about that i get that and what was really revealing is the reason why the by the 95 theses in 1517 is so big for for these reformed authors is because mm-hmm. of the emphasis in the theses on obedience not on love exactly yeah exactly so they they actually didn't make the, i mean they accused lutherans of not going far enough with the reformation mm-hmm. but ironically they're still kind right. of stuck in medieval catholicism on this covenant well, but- of works to your point, then, think about the distinction in tone between the Heidelberg Disputation and the 95 Theses, mm, yeah. and that Luther scholars would credit the Heidelberg Disputation as really being the jumping off point for the Reformation, because that's really when people who were in attendance went back to their own churches, their own um, cloisters even, and said, I just witnessed something amazing that was radically different than anything I've ever heard before. Right. And yet, Luther then... In, at Heidelberg, he's using the terminology of late medieval Roman Catholicism, but then he just turns it on his head and goes, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Versus, like you pointed out, the 95 Theses, which are still firmly entrenched within that system because he hasn't really broken from it. Whereas at Heidelberg, he breaks hard. Yeah, and it's not because, that long. I mean, it's only been right. a year, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You look at those two things, it's like the difference between help and Sergeant Peppers. Hmm. It's like, how did that happen <laughs> so fast? Well, because his thinking was moving so fast. Yeah, and, and the world was changing it, that fast. And it really was because it was the end of feudalism. Mm-hmm. And feudalism was crashing down around everybody's heads. And everybody was trying to figure out where they were going to land. And I think that's the thing, though, is that if you credit, if you say, well, we're going to hang our hat historically on 1517, not 1518. I think your tone as a theologian is different, too, though. Yeah. To your point is that you can find reformed theologians who read the 95 Theses and say, oh, we can jive with this because theologically the reformed and Roman Catholics are very similar mm-hmm. because they're both children of Augustine. Whereas um, Luther is a child of Augustine, but Luther is the bratty kid who says, I don't like the way that you raised me. And so I'm going to pick and choose the things from you that I like, and I'm going to get rid of the rest. Whereas the Roman Catholic church and the, and the Calvinist reformed church went, we're just going to adapt Augustine. We're going to keep Augustine and we're going to, you know, early Augustine, mid- midlife Augustine, uh, later gotcha. Augustine. Yeah. And we're just going to adapt it. Versus Luther who said, yeah, I just reject this part because he was wrong. Right. The Roman Catholic Church never really said Augustine was wrong. They just kind of said, well, we like this stuff better than that other stuff. And Calvin said, no, I like the later stuff better than the early stuff. And a lot of that then coalesces into the same understanding of sin and grace or obedience or the law. And yet, then when you come to Luther and the Wittenberg theologians, they are being critical of Augustine and saying, this will keep, but the rest is garbage. 
and you see that at Heidelberg for sure. So it's not it's not a practical opposition, you know, to the papacy or the marriage of priests or these sort of things, or right. even penance. But it's really uh, over justification by faith. And mm-hmm. for, for Lutherans, whereas yeah. I don't know if that's quite the emphasis of, of, of the Reformed crowd. I mean, it is on Calvin. Calvin's agreed, at least with yeah. that, with that uh, assertion from Augsburg. Well, to give you an example, I had, I had lunch with some Reformed folks uh, the other day. and uh, Hello, Reformed was, folks. Welcome. Hello, Reformed folks. And I thought what I was telling is that I kept talking about Jesus Mm. And everything kept coming back to Jesus and baptism, Jesus and the Lord's table, Jesus mm-hmm. and baptism. They kept saying God, ah, yeah, God this, God that, and it's a maybe it seems like a minor critique or a minor point, but there are lots of gods, mm. and there are lots of ways to talk about God, speculate about God in our conversations as Christians without being specific in this is this was my point is like when I talk about Jesus I can talk about the specificity of where God chooses to be preached revealed and worshiped for you mm-hmm. and this was the point that I was making in the conversation is that we we need to locate where God is God for you because that's really the gospel is the for you-ness of the gospel and when we talk about God and where he is at for you that can go in a lot of different directions. Is he in your heart? Is he speaking to you? Is he speaking to you through the words of the Bible? Is it a neighbor? Is it your pastor? Is he not speaking to you? Where do you receive forgiveness of sin then mm. if there's not a preacher? like When you talk about God in a very general sense, you get a very general set of, well, you get a general theology. Yeah. Versus speaking about God specifically, your theology becomes more specific. Right. And it becomes the specific benefit, right? Right. Whereas generic God has only generic benefit, which is, well, I guess you generally feel better that there's somebody who's in charge, you know, the sovereignty of God, right? you know, that's kind of watching out for you and for for this world, which would be nice, especially if you're in England and you want the sovereign uh, ruler of England. Uh, Right. (laughs) Back to that. Right. But, uh, But as to how that actually interacts with you day to day, Mm-hmm. You know, or week to week, uh, right? It's not that. Specific. Well, what happens when a cross falls on you? What happens when God lays a cross on you, or a tower and, falls on you, or a tower falls on you? What do you do? How do you use your baptism when you've never been pointed to the reality, the practical day to day reality of how to use your your baptism invocation? That, and this brings us back around then to this whole matter of self annihilation or dying to self is. Jesus does provide an example for us in the context of what love looks like, godly love versus human love. Godly love is self-annihilating. Mm-hmm. And or self-giving, the mechan- right? Or self-giving, self-giving. And death and resurrection is built into our baptismal formula. It's built into our baptismal confession. It's the mechanism of our salvation. Forgiveness, life, and salvation come through our death and our resurrection in Christ. That the self-giving or the self-annihilation of God takes place specifically through death and resurrection. This is Paul's point in Romans, who would die for a righteous man, mm-hmm. let alone, right? And yet Jesus dies for unrighteous men. He dies for us while we were still enemies of God, while we were still ungodly. While we were still ungodly, while we were still enemies of God, he died to reconcile us to God. That this is our problem, fundamentally, is this conversation, is we know death and resurrection is the mechanism of our salvation. We know that self-giving, self-annihilation is the way of self-sacrifice, the way of godly love. And we love it in theory. We love hearing about it from the pulpit. We love talking about it in Bible study. But then when it comes to the actual day-to-day fact of it, 
and this is my point too in, in talking with these reformed folks was to really urge them to be more specific in their language so that when the tower falls on them when the cross is laid on them they don't despair or they don't run around trying to find meaning for this but rather recognize this is what sinners do and with this cross that you're bearing this is how sin squirts out yeah this is how it breaks loose in your life it cuts you off on the first commandment so that you fear love and trust things that are not god and that leads to all kinds of horrible things like using your children as a avatar mm-hmm. divorce murder gossip not you know leaving your church apostatizing all of these things yeah and ultimately it's because you don't want to give up on yourself mm-hmm. that's what forgiveness is in the end forgiveness is self annihilation mm-hmm. it's dying to your own need to be right or as one person said what is that um Pain, you know, when you punish yourself, you're punishing yourself for someone else's mistakes. That's what anger is. Anger is punishing yourself from somebody else's mistakes. That when you lay awake at night and you're really angry at someone for having wronged you, you're punishing yourself for someone else's yeah. sin. You certainly, you care about it. I mean, you're, you're showing where your passions right. lie. But <laughs> but why do you care so much about it? That's the point, right? Mm-hmm. If someone speaks about me and says, I talk too much, right? That I think out loud, I talk too much, I'm a jabber jaw. If that offends me or I'm hurt by that or I'm angered by that, I shouldn't ask, why are you saying that about me? But rather I should take a step back and ask, do I talk too much? Have I not considered how much I talk? Uh-huh. And, and Or is the reason that that criticism hurts me or angers me because I know that about myself, but I don't want to do anything to correct it. Mm. Because what you see as a vice, I see as a virtue. Right. Or it alerts me to the fact that maybe I think my voice has more value or weight than anybody else in the room. So everybody else should shut up so I can talk. Versus, no, this is just the way I think. I think out loud. Or maybe a little <laughs> bit of all of that, right? A lot of all of it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I even deal with this in training. Ding! That one of the things that I do as a discipline is I force myself to ask other people how they're doing and keep asking them questions about their own life and not comment on my own life and say, oh, yeah, me too. Because I know, at least for myself, it's super annoying, especially when you're trying to verbalize something that bothers you or that is troubling to you. Or, you know, like it's when you're, when one of your children is sick, for example. Hmm. And then someone wants to leap, jump in and co-opt your pain or your worry or anxiety with their previous pain or current pain and anxiety. So you say, I'm really worried right now because she's sick and we don't really know what's wrong with her. And then the other person says, oh, I know, you know, when my baby was sick, Da, 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 da. I'm like, this isn't about you. Yeah. And you've just hijacked my pain to make yourself feel better. Well, we actually have a term for that in social media, which is probably not helping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, hijacking the threat, right? Yeah, you're hijacking the threat. It's mm-hmm. virtue signaling in a very passive aggressive way. Like, I'm going to jump on here. You're asking for my, you're not asking for my help. You're, you're making maybe a simple statement, right. but then I'm going to talk about myself or my own problems. Right. And I want you to well, think the, about me yeah. and not about yourself anymore. I was listening to a podcast here yesterday about this very thing that when someone posts on social media, I don't care what anybody thinks. I just want to. Um, yeah, you do. That's why it's called social mm-hmm. media. Yeah. You're you're putting something out on social media to tell people you don't care what they think about what you're putting on social media. But if you didn't care what they actually thought about what you're saying, you wouldn't put it on social media. So just own the fact that you do care what other people think. And that irony. is why you're putting it on social media. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A really sad kind of irony. It is. It is. But that's the point then is that the inner call to loving sacrifice 
corresponds to the more uh, defensive outward grip of God. That God is trying. The, the the purpose of God's word of law is to protect us from ourselves and protect our neighbors from us and protects us from our neighbors. Right? There are these boundaries. There's these 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 fences. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine, Johnny Cash saying. Hmm. And why? Well, because my heart has many cravings, and all of them have to do with taking something from my neighbor that was not given to me as a gift. And really at base, that is what we're talking about too, is that when we love ourselves more than our neighbor, what we end up doing is just recommitting the original sin, which is to take for ourselves what wasn't given to us in the way of gift. We reach in and we grab the fruit, although it's not given to us to take. And therefore, that's our rebellion against God. So when I see your family and I say, well, I envy your family and I want what you have, what I'm trying to do then is to say, well, God hasn't given me what he's given you mm-hmm. in the way of right. gift. And so I'm going to take from you or take from God or demand from God that which has not been given to me in the way of gift. And again, now I'm not faced up with cross and, and Sunday morning. I'm simply faced up with you. And I've turned you now into my Jesus, mm. so to speak. Ouch. That I can save myself or I can gain some measure of happiness or gratitude or just calm and, and, and comfort by just duplicating or imitating you, which essentially describes all of media for the most part. That's advertising in a nutshell is you suck, your life sucks, your family and your relationships suck, but they can be better if you just take this pill, drink this liquid, put this shampoo in your hair, drive this car, Come to this seminar. Yeah. Yes, come to this seminar, right. It's my, one of my favorite uh, Simpsons is uh, with those infomercials with Troy McClure. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such in, you know, infomercials as Blood Run, Runs Red on the Highway and Get Confident, Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but that's every advertisement. That's really what they're saying is your life sucks and you could be smarter and more vibrant and all the way around just a better person if you just do that thing that we're selling you for 27 easy installments of 1999. Yeah. That's an old reference. Right. I suppose they don't, people don't watch late night TV like that anymore. Nope. Uh, so that's the inner calling to loving sacrifice. So God lays hold of us in the heart by means of the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself, love others as you would have them love you. There is no one who does not feel or does not have to confess that it is right and true when the natural law speaks. What you want done and left undone to yourself, that do and leave undone also to another. This light lives and shines in all men's reasons. This is Luther. In, what is this? Uh, Sermon on Matthew. Yeah, it's cut off yeah. online. Okay. Okay, yeah, Sermon on Matthew. 1532. Now, is that fundamentally Christian? <laughs> no, it's not. Because no. this, is, this has to do with the neighbor. It's in all men's reason. Right? Exactly. It is something exactly. that hopefully <laughs> uh, we can all agree upon and for like a civil society, right? Well, we used to be able to, mm. to some extent. What's but changed? now that we've, well, we killed God off in the 50s and 60s, and now we're trying to kill each other off because we eliminated God. I was, I was listening to one of our own podcasts the other day, just to, it was the one where I kept clearing my throat because I was super dry. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I apologize for that to everybody who suffered through that. But that... We talked about this, that the 50s and 60s, the death of God movement that began in the 50s and this attempt to push God out of the public square. Mm -hmm. And then once that was accomplished by the 70s and 80s, then we went to work on ourselves because, of course, we wanted to be God in God's place. So we replaced God with ourselves. 
But now what's come about in the last generation here is everything's going to kill us. <laughs> We're afraid of everything. We're raising our children to be afraid of everything. We've tried to nerf the world, but the more that we try and nerf the world, the worse it gets. It's like uh, the stabbings in London. So the mayor of London decided we're just going to make it against the law to carry a knife. We, you, they already can't carry guns. Now they can't carry knives right. either. So let's just eliminate knives, which one, the knife, the machetes that were used to break in and steal these watches were homemade machetes, machetes. And second, you do realize that by outlying guns and knives, the only people that will use guns and knives are the government and criminals. Yeah. That's kind of the problem with making a law to protect law-abiding people from people who don't abide by the law. People who don't want to abide by the law, by their very definition, don't care about your law preventing other people from carrying knives. And it's any knife, like a jackknife. Like I carry a jackknife around with me all the time. I open boxes with it, envelopes. Uh, I cut, you know, I use it for everything because um, I live in a place where you use a jackknife a lot. I've never once thought about, I have to turn my jackknife in because it's a deadly weapon. Until you end up at the airport yeah. and you forget that you had it in your pocket. There is that. I, I have done that on one occasion mm-hmm. where I got out of the car and luckily my wife had not driven away yet. But I was like, oh, wait, no, that's not a good Apparently you don't need thing. that on an airplane. <laughs> a knife? No, apparently not. <laughs> But nonetheless, it just goes to the point that having eliminated God, pushed God out of the public square, now we're actually pushing our humanness out of the public square. And once we've we've started to attack and annihilate our differences and instead emphasize, well, we've all got to be basically the same. That it means we have to accept everybody as being the same. And by everybody, I mean my definition of everybody. Mm-hmm. And whoever has the the loudest, shrillest, most forced definition of what it means to be a human being, you win. Yeah. So the problem is, of course, with media and and Silicon Valley, everything leans a particular political direction. Hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so with the death of God movement, you also had the death of of law and reason. You did. You did. Objective law and objective reason. Mm-hmm. The golden rule is the yes or no. Of my personal taste buds now. And now that we're in the generation that is destroying language, that language has no ultimate objective meaning either, we've destroyed God, we've destroyed society, and now we're destroying language. They're actually the thing that holds society together that allows us to engage in these social contracts with each other. Well, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like the statement, like, if I do something, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it should right. be fine. And you're like, well, is there something you can do that's not going to hurt anybody else? <laughs> die no no not even die no, no everything I'm, you do hurts I, even breathing hurts somebody else well or at least interacts with them right it may not mm-hmm. hurt them necessarily but but you you can't live you know entirely independently of of the world well yeah. the thing is it, the world runs on a life for a life mm-hmm. life gives way to life this is written just read genesis one that the the seed bearing plants the only way for a seed-bearing plant to actually produce other plants is to drop its seed. There has to be a mechanism there of the seed-bearing fruit, sorry, bearing, you know, dropping its seed so that more fruit can grow. Yeah. Same thing, go out and, and uh, be fruitful and multiply. It's fundamentally built into the creation that, a li- that life gives way to life. Yeah, which came first, and, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> right. Jesus, the word came first, right? right? And therefore, in relation to Jesus, a life for a life is a life. Let there be chickens who bear eggs. Right. Well, and this is the point of Good Friday, that a, Jesus gives his life to give, to bring life. In the way of Christ, giving your life gives life. 
But yeah. it also then doesn't end with that. Well, and he it refers end with to that. himself as the seed that falls to the ground and dies, right? And, and exactly. brings forth life. Yeah. So, in a, in a Genesis one sense, and then in a, if we read it in re- relation to the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, life falling to the ground and giving way to other life is not the end. It's not a, an endless cycle of beginning and ending and beginning and ending. It's not a circle. It's simply a continuation of life. It's just life upon life upon life upon life through death and resurrection. But we want to read backwards into something like Genesis 1 and say, well, no, there was no death until after the fall. Well, no, there was no death by way of separation from God after the fall. But what is death? Because even Luther in his, in his lectures on Genesis says, God had no intention of leaving Adam and Eve in the garden Mm-mm. to work forever or to that he would just take them. At a certain point, he would just be like, I'm taking you now. You're done with that. Your kids can take over. You're going to be with me now. That's it. And so I think we we think of life and death in very physical terms. But if we read them Christologically, it's not life gives way to death, gives way to life, gives way to death, but rather a life for a life produces life. Right. And that's the way of the fourth commandment in that yeah, um, right. we honor our father and mother either, even in death. Is that not only are we dependent upon them um, for our very existence, you know, mm-hmm. as they are procreating, you know, with right. God, as we would say. Um, but we're also dependent upon them from everything that we've learned, you know, for the wisdom right. that, that we gain from them. Their their life was not meaningless. It actually, mm-hmm. it does carry forth, not just genetically, but, but right. in terms of knowledge and wisdom. Well, and it's also distinguishing between the little D of physical death, and the big D of death that is to be cut off from God forever. Yeah, annihilation. Right, right. exactly. That Jesus says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, you live. So again, the fruit falls to the ground and dies, and yet it lives. I fall to the ground and die, and yet I live. Mm-hmm. Not just in a memoriam sense, but in the very actual Jobin sense of, uh, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day I will see him face to face. I will look him in the eyes. Versus, well, this died and we'll never see it again. Which is more, more in the way of uh, nihilism almost, mm-hmm. or fatalism. You know, we actually end up reading Genesis 1 and 2 almost fatalistically. That there was no dying before the fall. Well, what kind of death are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we talking philosophically? Or are we talking theologically? Like, what kind of death are we talking about? And I notice, especially in conservative churches, we're not allowed to have this conversation. No, well, it gets, gets bound up in creation, creation science. Right, right, exactly. Six-day creation conversation. Right. Which, which I'm not talking about, so don't let's, get, get let's not confused. Go there. Yeah. No, and I don't want to, and I'm not <laughs> even, I wasn't even referring that, going that direction. But it does get but, caught up in that, as, uh, specifically... Because you're not talking about Jesus. <laughs> well, that's true, too. One of the things I like... Um, you know, in funerals where we where we actually are recognizing death is mm-hmm. uh, when, you know, the the children of the deceased and the grandchildren, the great grandchildren are mm-hmm. there. Is that you do see that uh, that this life uh, carries forward in these in these children, right? Right. That too. That that, that the and yes, and then we flip it in our preaching to say, and you will see them again. Right. Right. Well, that's the difference between the the little d death that is, my children carry me into the future, and yet that's still a little deep death because it's simply an ongoing death. It's just being passed down to my children versus the big deep death. When that's off the table because of God's baptismal promise, it's not a death, it's a sleep. Mm, right. He is asleep and you will sleep also. Or he has risen and you shall arise, give God the glory, alleluia. Like the hymn says, that the, the, when the big deep death is right there in front of you, it's really difficult then to say anything of any comfort to the children. 
because mm-hmm. all you can really, I mean, all you're really going to, you're trying to avoid having to say, you see that? Yeah, that's what's coming next for you. That's right. That's your future. That's your destiny. That's it. That's all there is. Versus pointing at the corpse and saying, this is not the final word. Mm. But rather, I'm the resurrection of life, says Jesus. He, whoever uh, dies will live. That's not a death. It's a sleep. Mm-hmm. And therefore, all of creation in Christ doesn't die, but rather simply sleeps. It's awaiting the final judgment, the last day, like a child in labor, or a woman in, labor, in childbirth, mm-hmm. in labor. And forgets her sorrows. And forgets her sorrows, that all of creation yearns. And remember this, this is the key point too, that all creation yearns for the last day, not just the Christian, all creation. In fact, I would. that's kind of the point that Paul, I think, is trying to make, is that all creation, regardless of whether you're a believer in Christ or not, yearns for the return of Jesus. Because it's built into us, because the law is built into us. It's woven into our hearts, it's written into our hearts, and therefore the law's ultimate end is Jesus. The terminus of the law is Jesus. So therefore anyone who wrestles with a question of law, whether it's natural law or the Lex Christi, the law of Christ, which is self-sacrifice, it all points to Jesus, mm-hmm. whether you can name it or not. In fact, that's the whole reason for atheism. That's the whole reason for every religion ever invented is simply... Uh, a rejection or a re-presentation of the one ultimate truth that there is only one God mm-hmm. and it's Jesus, this man. Just finding some way to deal with that deep-seated, you know, fully integrated longing mm-hmm. for yeah. for rebirth, for renewal, right. for eternal life. Well, think, think about atheism from the perspective of the cross that an atheist rejects God because they look around and they simply give up. <laughs> that they really lose hope in any future outside of their living. Mm. That, like you said, yeah, maybe their children are their legacy, that their their children will carry their name forward, their personality, certain traits, but that ultimately what atheism does is it simply rejects a future where death isn't the final word and we're not recycled by the, by the earth. Or right? we just put a lot of effort into extending life as, as long as possible. Yeah, right. right. But really, ultimately, the point is like you look around and go, yeah, I don't see any evidence of God. So what's the point? Because mm-hmm. there's this life that I live now. And I guess I could waste the rest of my life hoping in some magical Disneyland type of place that we all go to when we die. Or I could just enjoy my life now and accept the fact that there is no higher power that's guiding us or giving us any ultimate purpose. But even in Disneyland, there is that personal hell. It's a small world. (laughs) I was going to say Disneyland is my personal version of hell. (laughs) Everyone's dressed up in costumes. All the and all the food is perfect. And there's lots of people there. And there's a and there's a special day for everyone. That's right. There's a special day for everyone. Oh, it's terrifying. So there's no one Luther (laughs) says who does not feel or does not want to confess that it is right and true when the natural law speaks. What you want done and left undone to yourself, that do and leave undone to another. This light lives and shines in everybody's reason. That is, everybody has this in their brain. So really, even the death of God movement, the the self-annihilation that we engage in every day, the death of language, as that language has definitions, like accepted definitions of language, but that language can be just redefined according to, our, to suit our needs. All of that, if we follow Luther's reasoning here, is simply a pushback against this very golden rule Yeah, that we recognize when we look in the mirror, this is the way things are. And then we, we turn from the mirror and go, I reject that. 
I reject reality. Hmm. So what do you do then? Right? Well, you go, you go to work attacking the very language that defines you. Yeah. If you can't deal with it, you just have to reject it. That's all you're left with. Right. And so that's where we're at right now is a simple rejection of, it's like when someone says there's no such thing as gender. <laughs> well, yes, there is. <laughs> Scientifically, there right. is. Yeah, biologically. It's, it's, it's a closed question, as a matter of fact, <laughs> because chromosomes are an objective reality. Right. That's and yes, just the way yes, it is. Yes, there is that rare condition where uh, the chromosomes right. you know, don't fit the, right. the, the model. But, he, but here's, the, and that is an excellent point that you raised then, is that what we've done now in the present tense is we've taken the exceptions and made them the rule. Of course. And then we've taken the rule and said, meh, that's, you're all outliers, mm. right? It's like white male privilege. I can acknowledge that, yeah, I have enjoyed some privileges as a white man that friends of mine who are not white have not enjoyed. Like, I have been in the back of police cars before and not been charged with <laughs> narcotic trafficking or selling of narcotics, whereas friends of mine who are black and Hispanic have been. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly say, hey, you were arrested by the same cops that didn't arrest me, and yet I had more drugs on me than you did. That's kind of strange. Privilege. <laughs> um I would say that's privilege. I would, in my own personal anecdotal way. Whereas in other, in a broad, but I, I would say that is that that area. That's an exception. Like in that area, yeah, I, I've seen that prejudice before. I've seen bigotry come through. But in general, I'm poor. I've always been poor. I grew up on welfare and food stamps. And therefore, any privilege that I might have extended toward me, I would say I had to work my butt off to really get anything because I didn't, I wasn't born with any advantages. I was just, I was born poor white trash, essentially. Mm -hmm. I was just poor white trash and I was been considered poor white trash for a majority of my life up to this point. And yet we look at someone saying white privilege, white male privilege, and we go, that's the norm now. That's the norm. White men are the problem. By the people who embrace a, an ideology, a philosophy that was written by a white European man, that be Karl Marx. <laughs> ironically yes. right exactly which shows the level of learning that a lot of these people engage in who throw these ideological catchphrases out these mottos or bumper stickers but i would then cross the street and say the same thing happens in our churches mm. that we espouse ideology versus um theology to this point that we also acknowledge, and we should acknowledge in the church, that there is something written into our heart, this law that's written into our heart, this golden rule. And yet, it does it point us to Christ? That's my question. Ah, because, I see. Because, yeah, the golden rule applies to all religions equally. Yeah. Because it's written on all our hearts. In fact, I would, I would argue that the origin of all religions comes out of the golden rule. I had a professor who taught me that, that the history of religion is the history of the interpretation of law. Well, and that's Romans 1 to 3, right? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so every religion ever invented is simply that wrestling with the golden rule and then saying, well, let's worship the Buddha or let's worship uh, Allah, the God of Allah or let's worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or whoever it may be. Mm -hmm. But if the specificity, the specificity excuse me, of Christ isn't front and center, can we really be so certain that we are confessing a Christian faith, a Christ-focused faith? Or are we simply arguing from our side of the street that Christianity is more right in our interpretation of the law than all these other interpretations of the law? Well, and at its core, to confess Christ is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of reason. It's not a matter of the law either. 
right? I mean, we don't we don't have that written on our hearts. <laughs> um, right. Maybe maybe the longing or the desire for for salvation, but not certainly not the Savior Himself. That has to be revealed to us. Exactly. So continuing then, God does not reach out to us simply by means of external commandments. Hmm. Neither, strictly speaking, by means of rational cogitation. Rather, he takes hold of us by the deeply rooted will of our ego. Interesting. Our own ego, we have to cover that because obviously Luther knew nothing about the ego because <laughs> that's a modern term. So we'll come right. back to that. Our own ego spontaneously and without any reflection tirelessly establishes the standard by which we judge how our neighbor deals with us. By just that standard, which we apply with great care and precision to our neighbor, God nails us in our conscience by directing it back at us in a boomerang, boomerang excuse me, like fashion. So I would not use the term ego uh, no. <laughs> in this, because like I said, that's a modern term and comes out of psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, and it's just become a part of our language now, ego, id, superego, reptilian brain, all that stuff, mm-hmm. which I guess in, a, in an earthly sense, in a, in a kind of philosophical sense, may be helpful for sorting out intent and motive. Right. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you thinking that way? We can agree on a, again, we can agree on a commonality of language, a commonality of definitions to suss out how we relate to each other as neighbor. Right. It's However, kind of, kind of like the New yeah. Testament and its use of body, soul, spirit. Right. You know, it's yeah. not, they're not always, they don't always have the same definition. And mm-hmm. it, it does seem to be a co opting of, you know, the terms of the day to help yeah. kind of describe... Well, Paul does that all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah, trying to describe the person in various with various aspects, but mm-hmm. none of those terms, even together, body, soul, and spirit, don't mm-hmm. describe the whole person, only describe certain right. aspects of him. Right, exactly. And this is, this key point is that for a long time, people thought the soul resided in your kidney <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or somewhere therein, right? Yeah. Uh, and then in, uh, at a different time, it was, they thought your soul is in your mind. In fact, I would argue, this is an interesting point historically, that during the Enlightenment and the rise of the scientific method, the whole sacred canopy was torn apart. The sacred canopy meaning everything going to be explained as like a curse of God. Like, you have a stomachache? That's because you have a demon inside you. That's why we say bless you when you sneeze. So a demon doesn't jump down your throat and take possession of you. Oh. Or those kinds of things. You know, your whole village is killed. Well, obviously God is punishing you for your sin. Versus a cholera outbreak. As science poked holes in all of these assertions, the church retreated further and further from, uh, what do you want to say, the public square. Right. And eventually everything was the area of the soul, the realm of the soul. You can have the world, but we still have the soul. And this understanding of the soul is residing in your mind or you know in your brain pan. Freud tore that apart. Freud was really the, the final straw. Mm the final enlightenment straw that destroyed the sacred canopy, because not only was the external world now explained away, but now your mind was explained away too. That your motives for what you do, your id, your superego, your identity, all these, these terms come out of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And we use them as if they just have always been around, but they haven't. And so for Luther, the term ego would have been completely alien to him. Right. And that's the only reason I bring it up in, in the context of this podcast so that you understand listeners that doesn't mean that it's um unhelpful in describing no, that's what a I mean. person right exactly no it's right. still it's still helpful 
But yeah. on the flip side, it's not something Luther would have known. So there isn't going to be a direct. It has its there's not going to be a direct correspondence in right. the thinking of Luther. Luther would more than likely either refer to the old Adam, the the motivations of the old Adam, or simply the motivations of sin. Mm-hmm. That yeah. this is a consequence of sin. This is what sinners do. That's what I mean, though, is like we re- we replace the word old Adam with the word ego. <laughs> and you know what the difference is, is that the old Adam hangs on your whole life. You can't kill the old Adam. You mm-hmm. can't drown him completely until you die physically. Your ego, I can fix that stuff. Yeah. I can go to counseling. I can read books. I can take steps to curb my ego, to take care of my ego. Well, in a real sense... Um... You know, for someone when they're baptized, they receive a new ego, a new way of understanding themselves, right? A new mm-hmm. identity. I'm now a baptized right. child of God. Well, and the ego, of course, is internal, and therefore mm-hmm. it's an internal process where everything for Luther was what? External. Mm-hmm. It was always an external objective reality. This is the danger of talking about God speaking to your heart, or you you speaking to God non-verbally, mentally, you're having thoughts. Well, your mind and your heart are both sinful. Yeah. So exactly what is being said to you and what is your response? Hmm. We have to be very careful about internalizing God. And one way we can do that is by following the language of psychoanalysis, which internalizes all of our problems and then projects them outward onto the world uncritically. So that's what our ego does. It spontaneously, without any reflection, tirelessly establishes. So to the point then, and I've said this in previous podcasts, really what he's after is, our heart always wants something that benefits us. <laughs> of course. And then our mind always justifies what our heart wants. I think that's really what we're after here, that the ego is, theologically speaking, my heart always wants something that's a benefit to me, even if it means that I have to annihilate my neighbor. Yeah. And that my mind will justify what my heart wants to me so that even when I murder my neighbor, I'll still believe I'm doing the right thing. That I'm justified in murdering my neighbor. I'm justified in divorcing my wife. I'm justified in abusing my children. I'm justified in being a lazy pastor, not answering the phone, or showing up unprepared for church. There's there's always a, an excuse. There's always a justification for not showing up in comes, a relationship. And then comes God with his external law <laughs> exactly. to reveal exactly. to us. Um, or to reveal to our conscience specifically, you know, where, right. <laughs> where we're confused. There's a, there's a really, there's an old movie. It's a Fritz Lang movie from like 1929 with Peter Lorre. Hmm. Peter Lorre is a famous actor. He was, uh, he starred in, or co-starred in a lot of Humphrey Bogart movies. Humphrey yeah, Bogart loved him. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea too, right? Did he? Yeah. <clears throat> but it's called M. And I think it might be based on a novel. But anyways, it, you can see a lot of it on YouTube. But especially the final scene, which is really the the key scene in the entire movie. But M is, in my opinion, the the best expression on film of original sin that I've ever seen. Because the the story, this is really what's wild about it. It's a 1929 movie, and one of the first talkies, and it's about a child killer. <laughs> and about the hunt in this village for this child killer. Wow. And it's it's so well done. And yet, terrifying. For a 1929 movie, it is a terrifying movie. The way that that Fritz Lang constructs a scene and his cinematography is phenomenal. But the final scene, which like I said, go to YouTube and watch this final scene, M, the final scene, is that M is caught. And he's basically taken into like this cellar. By the way, spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. He's taken into this cellar. And in the cellar are all of the men of the village. 
And then there's a table with the three elders of the village. Mm. And, and it's quiet and there's just candlelight torches, right? And M is put before all of them and there's no, there's no soundtrack. There's no dialogue for like a minute. It's just quiet and M is looking at all of them. And if you know Peter Laurie, he's got these big beady eyes. Yeah. They're always darting side to side. So he's the perfect villain. And then he, he makes a confession and his confession, to, as I said, is one of the clearest confessions of original sin that you will ever hear in a movie that is not intended to be theological. Because basically M argues, I don't want to kill children. I have to kill children. Mm. That it's a compulsion that overtakes me, that drives me to do what I do. I don't want to do what I do because I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I must do it. And he even talks in the sense of like the old Adam fighting against the, the new man in Christ in a moral sense. Again, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, wow. I, keep, I keep doing. So go check that out on YouTube. M, the final scene of M where Peter Laurie just confesses. It's it's really powerful. But that to me is what, what um, Peters is trying to say here uh, on commenting on Luther is we're just constantly justifying our actions to ourselves, Even when they're murderous and they're horrific, we'll still figure out a way to justify what we're doing. The final solution is a great example of that. Um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields in Cambodia. We're constantly figuring out ways to justify everything. We talked about this in a previous episode, I think too, about uh, the Sandy Creek massacre and uh, My Lai, the Dan Carlin hardcore history. Not right. Yep. That It's like, how do you... If you have a husband, if you have a wife and children, how do you as a husband justify killing a woman and a child <laughs> when you have a wife and child at home? How do you look at another woman and child and go, those aren't human beings? Like, how do you justify that to yourself at the end of the day? Mm. How do you go home and then go to church on Sunday after you did that? Very carefully. Like how, how do you, yeah. you know, yeah, very carefully, exactly. And it's, uh, what's it called? Displacement of responsibility. Mm. That is when you're in a group of people, you can push responsibility off and say, hey, I was just going along with orders. Or what, what, what can I do? I'm just one person. And arguably that's a way of dehumanizing your action, right? Right, exactly. It's, I'm not it's, responsible for myself or what I've done. Exactly. And this is why we, in a very practical sense, this is why we're constantly trying to force other people to carry our sin for us. Hmm. It's a, ultimately, it's a rejection of Jesus, obviously. But it's also a rejection of our humanity. We, we hate being reminded that in relation to God's holy law, in relation to God's will, we suck. <laughs> we yeah. fall far, far, far short of it. So we, we seek then to silence anytime God might tell us mm -hmm. as much. <laughs> right. Which may be directly with his word in church, so right. just don't go to church. Or it actually just may be through a spouse or a friend or, or neighbor exactly. who, who tells well, us, hey, you've wronged me. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I was talking with a friend of mine, Brittany. She's a professional um, MMA fighter. We were talking about this the other night too, because she's going to school to become a deaconess in the Baptist tradition. I think our Baptist friends. But we huh. were just talking about this in relation to because um, she interviewed me for a class project and then asked me to give her one of my sermons and played me. I think one of you know the greatest compliments you could pay me as a Baptist. She said, "I really liked your sermon. It was really focused on Jesus. I really appreciated that." Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, okay, great. It was my Easter sermon, so kind of hard to strike out with Easter sermons. but uh, Well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, but in the context of discussing the sermon and whatnot, we were talking about, <clears throat> to this point too then, when you get your priorities screwed up, fighting becomes more important than your faith. And she was just commenting on that she was going toward 
a career in fighting and then kind of pulled back and asked, well, but is this going to fulfill me as a person? Is this going to fulfill me as a, as a woman? Because I'm a mom, I'm a wife. My father's a pastor, a preacher. I grew up in the church. I have a very firmly grounded faith in Jesus Christ as my savior. And yet this avenue that I'm pursuing, I really like it. It's very satisfying for me. Yet will it ultimately fulfill me as a person? And so she had to kind of pull back from that and say, no, it, it doesn't. My faith does that. And so therefore, rather than pursue a career in fighting, I'm going to pursue a career as a deaconess. And yet still remain a fighter, but that's not my ultimate goal then. That's not my ultimate purpose. And to understand the distinction then between your earthly vocation and your primary vocation as a Christian, which is to worship God. Yeah. And we that's and that's what I was really talking to her about then, because as a Baptist too, she struggles with this whole matter of vocation. That can you can you do things that aren't quote unquote religious works? Mm, okay. That are not explicitly Christian works. And for a Baptist, that's a that's a that's a conversation. That's a difficult conversation. Whereas for myself as a Lutheran, we distinguish between those two kingdoms. Well, we so say I can, we do. I'm, but I was gonna say, yeah, in a general sense, we we're as Lutherans, we're, we do, in a general sense. But so many Lutherans are Baptistic in their theology. Well, but on the flip side, you know, you'll hear this, um, you know, from the seminaries or from the colleges. You know, pursue a church work vocation. There's nothing yeah. more fulfilling. And right, I'm like. Well, maybe in one sense that's true. I mean, because you're very directly being evangelical, I, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. I just think uh, to go down the path, and since we've been discussing it personally, I think it's the least fulfilling vocation that I've I've ever had mm. because it's one of self annihilation. It's one of constantly being demanded mm. that I give myself away. I was thinking about this in, again. Sometimes I'll just drive in my car without any music or anything, just so I'm alone with my thoughts. And one of the things I was thinking about is. When I'm left alone to write the sermon on Sunday, for Sunday, if you want a law sermon, those are easy, man. I can rip off a, a good ripping law sermon in maybe 15, 20 minutes because the law comes naturally to me. If I can, even that, you probably don't even need to write it down. I really don't because I just need to look at people on Sunday and I can just run down the list of complaints that I have. Right. But this is my key point. I'm not preaching the word of God, the law of God as the word of, the word of God. I'm preaching my construction Mm. of God's word of law. Or projection. Or rejection, which comes out in the form of a holy complaint. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is, it's a sanctified complaint. That is, I'm just pointing at each person going, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, but Jesus still loves you. That as a pastor, it's the most unfulfilling vocation that I've ever had personally because it's taken so much from me. And Mm. it's robbed me in certain sense of energy and time that I could have devoted to my marriage, to mm-hmm. my family, to my neighbors, because uh, as a pastor, I'm taken advantage of constantly and right. gleefully taken advantage of. Joyfully am I taking advantage of. It's expected that people take advantage of me as their pastor. And yet they do it most of the time without any malice whatsoever. No, right. That's what I was going to say. This is not necessarily intentionally. You, you're seen as kind of a divine uh dispenser right i am i'm a, i Just am I'm a in, vending machine put in yeah. put in the coin yep get your gift you know right and the the value of me as a pastor is directly dependent upon your, the want of your heart mm. and this is the frustrating part of it the unrewarding part of it is there's nothing to punch back against nope. because it isn't done with malicious intent no. if it was malicious i could at least push back against that and i could be 
somewhat justified then in my anger or my resentment or you know pushing back on it, even though I I don't believe that, but just playing devil's advocate. But the fact that in my marriage and in my vocation as father, even in my relationship to other people, the encouragement that I receive, the motivation that I receive from them, the the appreciation for me as a human being is so much greater and and palpable. You can see it, you can feel it versus as the vocation of pastor, it's very often attempting, it, it tempts you to run to the theology of glory, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Be, because you, you're like, I got to have some measure that I'm, that I'm having some positive effect in, you know, because I've right. been here 10 years, no one's throwing me a party, October's coming, Pastor Appreciation Month, they never do anything for me, blah, 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 which by the way, is the most <laughs> fraudulent, hypocritical, bankrupt, a whole month, really? <laughs> Like, is there any more, like, theology of glory than setting aside an entire month to appreciate your pastor? Well, but it's kind of how we treat the Sabbath, right? Well, we set aside Sunday morning to go to church, so that should be enough. And you're like, that's not really the point of the Sabbath. It's just so bankrupt. Because on the one hand, you're like, as a pastor, I am to be selfless, self-giving. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. I must decrease that he may increase. But, oh, by the way, we're going to set apart an entire month for you to really appreciate me. Where's my cake? That's the biggest humble brag of all, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) It's like. I never made a point out of it, um, maybe because of the hypocrisy of it all, and, and maybe because right. I don't really want people paying too much attention to me. Because right, then exactly. And they're also going to be like, do we really want to celebrate this That's pastor? right. That's right. You know? Yeah, we're kind of appreciative, but maybe, <laughs> That's right. You know? So. But no, it, it is definitely not a vocation for people that want... What do I want to say? You people that get their identity and meaning from the ministry are the least happy people that I meet. Right. I was going to say, you can't build your ego on on the ministry because you, yeah. you effectively uh, don't have much to show for the work that, that, that you do. Um, really, it's very Ecclesiastes in the sense of what I worked for. Seven other pastors will come and completely destroy. Correct. <laughs> they'll inherit it, and then they'll rework it and destroy right. it and build something else. In its or place. they'll build upon it, and they're the ones who yeah. get the credit for it. Either way. Right. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, because definitely there are people who can come in and fix what I've made a, a horrible mess of mm-hmm. and can preach Christ more clearly than I can and teach the sacraments better than I can and be a much, 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 much better pastor than I ever could be. But yet... The, it's the truth is that whatever I've done will be done over by the next guy that comes along yeah. for good, bad, or indifferent. It's just, that's the way it works. And therefore for myself anyways, I don't get personally attached to the pulpit in that way that I, I get my identity and my meaning from the pulpit. Well, and if you did, then you run the risk of God bringing that back to bear upon you, you know? And, and devastating your conscience. Yeah, no kidding. Well, then you covet the pulpit. Right. You'd covet the pulpit, and then you're repented in the way of maybe your ministry is destroyed. Yep. Maybe you're the one who does it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that's the key point. And talking with my friend Brittany about that, too, is like, if your ultimate identity is wrapped up in your baptism, if your ultimate identity is wrapped up in my whole, the whole purpose of my life is to worship God. And that through faith in Christ, my entire life is one of worship. Then when it comes to something uh, vocationally, you can rest easy and not be all tied up in knots about whether this is a, a godly work or an ungodly work. Because the question isn't, is this godly or ungodly, but rather, well, how does it serve your neighbor? Mm-hmm. How does this serve your neighbor? How, do you, how, are you, how are you sacrificing yourself? How are you giving yourself for the sake of your neighbor? Yeah. 
And then, yeah, it gets muddy and messy because sinners are involved. But at least we're not using late medieval Roman Catholic categories like secular and religious, mm. which was the monasteries were were religious and then everything else was secular. Right. Well, and there's a danger, uh, at least I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with that personally, is to say, here's where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, who are you to say? Maybe right. you say, here's what's in front of me today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I've been put. That's what I've been given to do. Right. And that's enough. Right? right. It's all gift until you reach out and try and take something that's not. Or Which, make it something that it isn't. <laughs> right. And to your point then, I think the way in the present tense that we do this, we trespass this the most is we either spend all of our time in the past or all of our time in the future Mm, and none of our time in the present tense because we either look over our shoulder with what nostalgia for what could have been, what was both good and bad, or we put all of our stock in the future for good or bad. And we don't live in the present tense because the present tense then becomes burden, becomes curse. Mm. And we operate out of a theology of scarcity again. And that theology of scarcity does not allow us to trust in the gospel. It does not allow us to use our baptism, but rather it allows us to basically run back to what we know, which is I do something for God, and then I see the reward for that work Mm -hmm. in my own life in the way in which I have determined. This was one of the things uh, I was struck by when I visited Wittenberg and walking through um, uh, Luther's home, which was what before... Was that, uh, was that the cloister? No. Uh, his house was given to him by... Yeah, uh, Black by Cloister. The, yeah, it was the Black Cloister. Yeah. Right. And so you're going through there, and you go in the basement in the cellar, and it's all about Katie. Uh, that may have changed now. But you go down, the, and, and it has all these quotes from Katie about how upset she was with Luther, mm-hmm. about you know just inviting people into his home, spending time with everybody and anybody, uh, yeah. giving away, and, and not thinking about his his family's livelihood there was a way that whoever wrote the the signage down there was trying to imply that luther it was luther's fault that katie ended up a pauper you know at the end of her life yeah never mind the war and all that right and uh you know i mean her livelihood was based around um her farm and the brewing that she did Mm -hmm. the fisheries and the orchards yeah and and those things were taken from her through the war so yeah she lost her livelihood that's true but that wasn't Luther's fault. He was already dead. Right. Uh, but, but what was interesting about that is to say, you know, Luther in his own life, um, you know, he would, he's the kind of person, if you encountered him in the street and you had a question for him and you asked, it seems like he would give you the time of day. Mm-hmm. Like, even if he was hurrying on to something else, he would just be right. late for that because right. you were the person that was in front of him then. Right. And, you matter and, now. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I teach this to my confirmands. Your your neighbor is whoever's standing right in front of you at the moment mm-hmm. because vocation is location. The problem is when you try to make other people your neighbor who aren't in front of you at the moment. Yeah, You try to make them your cause or you try and you decide, I'm going to help them. I'm going to fix them. I'm going to do this for them. And they're going to benefit from this. I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip. <laughs> yeah, that could happen. That could oh. happen. Which so, might not be nefarious, but it might be like, yeah, I need to find something important to do. Yeah. Right. Right, I have to do something religious. Mm. I can't just volunteer down the street. I think everybody should go on a pilgrimage at some point. But oh, absolutely, I think so too. Do it for yourself. <laughs> go on mission trips as much as you can. Go on them; it'll open your eyes to the world. And you s- well, there's that, <laughs> and you might bump into somebody. Yeah, exactly. It might change your life. God nails us in our conscience by directing it back at us in boomerang, boomerang-like fashion. 
Mm-hmm. So Rudolf Boltmann and Gunther Bornkamm, who we probably won't be reading on this podcast, but uh, no. Lutherans, uh, here quote a saying by Soren Kierkegaard, also, one, of my, one of my favorite angry Lutherans ever. Probably not reading him on this show. <laughs> In fact, he may be my favoritist angry Lutheran ever, hmm. just because of the, his wit. Hmm. But Kierkegaard writes, in regards to this whole matter. If the neighbor is to be loved as oneself, then the commandment opens the lock of self-love, as with a lockpick and rips it away from man. (laughs) This, quote-unquote, as yourself, cannot be turned or twisted. Love your neighbor as yourself. Judging with the sharpness of eternity, it penetrates into the innermost hiding place where man loves himself. It does not leave the slightest excuse for self-love, not the tiniest escape. How wonderful one could certainly give lengthy and incisive speeches as to how man should love his neighbor. Oh, I'm sorry. How wonderful, exclamation point, mm-hmm. one, capital one. There we go. How wonderful. One could certainly give lengthy and incisive speeches as to how man should love his neighbor. And time and again, self-love would find excuses and escapes, which we've just been talking about. Get this as yourself. Indeed, no wrestler can cling to his opponent in such an inescapable way as this commandment clings to self-love. And this all works until someone becomes so deranged that they no longer love themselves, right? In any way, suicidal. Well, this is what I was going to say about the whole matter of obedience versus love and understanding the commandments properly according to Jesus, is that I think the reason that I believe, actually, no, 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 I think it, I'm convicted of this, that the reason that we want to focus on obedience rather than love is because we hate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we can't love each other is because we hate ourselves. You can't love someone if you hate yourself. It took me a long time to figure this out because uh, I'm dumb. But but it, it eventually hit me that, oh, the reason that people can't love selflessly isn't because they're incapable. It's because they hate themselves. Right. So the person who goes through and shoots up whatever, the school, yeah. then turns the gun on themselves. Right, exactly. And why is that the pattern? It's consistent, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or imprisoned or whatever. I mean, they turn themselves over. There's only the, It's only the, the really, mm-hmm. um, you know, what do you want to say? A psychopath, you know, mm-hmm. who, who resists arrest. <laughs> All the rest, yeah. they, they just give themselves over, um, yeah. either by killing themselves or... or right. just, you know. Well, first you you annihilate that outside of you mm-hmm. that has pushed you into the corner. And the problem then is if it's a mental illness, you have to eliminate what's inside of you that has that has kept you in that corner. So not only do I have to kill everyone around me who has put me in this place, but now I have to kill myself because I'm still in this place. Right. So you, you're destroying others in order to even further destroy right. yourself. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's It's a strange thing that the source of your pain is also the thing preventing you from ending your pain. But mm. then once you eliminate the source of your pain, there's this, this enormous release. And then in that moment, that release opens up the reality that this was only half of the problem. The other half of the problem is me. And so the only way I'm going to escape what I've just done and escape the consequences of what I've just done and escape what's still running through my mind is to annihilate myself. And that's really the tragedy of mass shooters is that they have no community that they're attached to that offers them an option. Yeah. 
a positive constructive option. <clears throat> this is why alcoholics drink themselves to death. It's why drug addicts overdose. Mm-hmm. It's why they relapse. Hey, did you know that Bayer Aspirin invented heroin? <laughs> uh, no. Tangent. Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> no, it just reminded me of drug addicts. Uh, yeah, they, they Bayer Aspirin ended up uh, basically perfecting. They didn't originally invent it, but they perfected heroin. And actually, they put aspirin on the back shelf because they discovered heroin and they found that it was better than aspirin. Hmm. It and works. it was to replace morphine. Oh. Yeah. And, then, uh, we, <laughs> and of course, it was more effective than morphine. And it was sold as aspirin, essentially. And it was completely harmless, non-addictive. <laughs> Supposedly. And, huh. and within three years, they had to shelve it because it turns out it's highly addictive. Mm. And people, But they, you know what they replaced that with? No. Codeine. Oh. Oxy. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, yeah. that's the thing. So, yeah, all of this con- controversy about the uh, opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that long ago that we said we weren't going to use opiates anymore. That's right. <laughs> and now they're back. Well, that's that right. was not so long ago. That would be the opium trade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, this is the problem is that every generation says this going all the way back to opium being imported in this country from China. And <clears throat> so you go from opium to morphine, morphine to heroin, heroin to oxycodone. Mm-hmm. And now, whatever the next thing, um, uh, the animal tranquilizer, rohypnol, not rohypnol, that's the the, date the fact that you know all of this. Fentanyl, well, fentanyl, yeah, 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 fentanyl. Now, fentanyl has replaced oxycodone and oxycotton, sorry, oxycotton. So it's like you can go back to the 1800s, and this is in the 1800s, opium, totally fine, it's totally harmless, it's a great medicine, it's non addictive. Oops, made a mistake. But don't worry, morphine will help you get a, get off your opium addiction. Because morphine, it's clean, it's natural, you can't get addicted to it. Oops, hey, don't worry, we have heroin. It'll get you off your morphine addiction. Repeat, rinse, oxy, rinse. You know, it's like fentanyl. It's like every generation says, no, this is totally non-addictive. It's really good for you, and it'll help you kick this terrible opiate addiction that you have. But it's been going on for over 150 years. Yeah. We're stupid. That's uh, the problem. Is well, that it is, a, it's that death of reason, right? <laughs> exactly. It is. Well, mm-hmm. especially when you introduce opiates. I mean, there's nothing reasonable about opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, this is the problem that we have as human beings, really, is that we, we think we can fix the mistakes of the past, but in, in the end, we actually just end up figuring out a new and better way to destroy ourselves. So is Kierkegaard right? I mean, this is the question. I think so. Is he, I mean, is he right in saying that... Uh, as yourself cannot be turned or twisted, that that there's no way that you can ignore this this command. You know, only in relation to Christ can you actually say that this has been settled. Mm. I would I would argue that in relation to and knowing Kierkegaard's context and not going into that, even though it's fascinating to me, knowing his context, living in a place where the state church is Lutheran, and yet as he is constantly arguing, most of the bishops aren't even Christians. Or at least that's his, you know, that's his opinion. They're mm-hmm. corrupt. They're hypocrites. They only care about money and status. Blah blah. blah. Most of the people that go to church on Sunday, they only go for status. It's a status thing to go to church because you get dressed up and you show up in your nicest carriage. And there's poor people's church, and then there's rich people's church, and they have different times for poor and rich people to go to church. All these kinds of things that Kierkegaard is essentially saying in criticism of his own generation: you can't escape loving your neighbors yourself. You can't escape your heart, which tells you that the things that you're doing are not loving. 
Yeah. You are not being Christ to your neighbor. This is the very opposite of loving Christ. You're loving your neighbor as Christ has loved you. And so I would just build off of, or springboard off of what Kierkegaard is saying here to say, that's really the point is that you can't escape as yourself. It's an unbendable command. It's the golden rule. It's written into our heart. And yet in Christ, what do we see when we look at the cross? We see our cross. We see our death. We see our hell. We see our resurrection. So therefore I can say as yourself is Christ crucified. Mm, okay. So when someone says love your neighbor as yourself, I would argue that the as yourself of the law is not pointing me back at myself because then all I find is sin and resistance. It's pointing me to Jesus. Yeah. So this is um, directing us towards maybe even a part of us that we don't even know, you know, Yeah. but it's, well, that, say, it's there. It's, it's still, it's been completely hidden under right. what we might call original sin. Right. Well, and I would argue this is really the point of the formula of Concord article six on the 30s of the law is that in a, in a first use sense, this as yourself is so that I take care of my neighbor mm-hmm. in just a purely Let's clean up our front yard. Let me help you rake the leaves kind of sense, just loving my neighbor. But it's also a second use sense in which it points me to Jesus, the ultimate as yourself, the terminus of this as yourself. Here is the as yourself done right. And therefore, the backspin of that in the third use is the old Adam has to be put to death by the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the new man in Christ loves his neighbor as himself because he is completely immersed in Christ Mm. through faith. And so it's not one or the other, but a both and. Hmm. And we often just try and fall into one or the other ditch by saying, well, it's either the first use or the second use. Got it's it. either I'm loving my neighbor or I'm loving my neighbor as Jesus has loved me. But then we want to turn the second use into a religious use. And where I can use that to, again, argue my way into heaven. But God, I did all these things for my neighbor. Doesn't hmm. it count for anything? He's like, what you did for the least of these you did to me. Yeah, there's no greater love than this that one man. <laughs> right. Exactly. Who has the name, by the way. One man. One man. <laughs> Lay down exactly. his life for his friends. So I think that's the trouble with the as yourself is that if I heard this and I'm not a Christian, mm-hmm. it's applicable. I can apply this to myself not as not a Christian. It's the golden rule. Yeah. And many have who aren't Christian. But as a Christian, I read it as Christ. Like you said, one man. This one man. Nice. And this is the commandment that clings to self-love, that as much as I want to love myself, and we've talked about this in the past too, is as anything that I do to make myself a better husband, a better father, a better pastor is still a selfish pursuit in and of itself Mm -hmm. because I am taking time and energy and money away from those vocations. And yet that's an inescapable truth of everything that I do as a person. Right. Because everything that I do as a person is going to be to serve myself. Because even my even being a better husband gives me a reward. Mm-hmm. That is, my wife adores and appreciates me. <laughs> and she tells me or she shows me by making me bulletproof coffee every morning. And I don't have to even ask her. It's just one way that she shows me that she appreciates me. Sweet. Now, would she do that if I didn't better myself? Yeah, she would because she just loves me. Mm-hmm. But that love, love your neighbors yourself, that as yourself... It may seem like a small inconsequential thing, but at six o'clock in the morning when my wife brings me that cup of coffee and I'm still in bed and I'm checking emails and stuff and she hands it to me, she doesn't even set it down, she hands it to me. To me, that's the as yourself at work. Yeah. And it humbles me, it it shames me in a positive sense of like, I wouldn't do that for her. <laughs> I'd roll over and kind of near in the back and be like, hey, you awake? Oh, well, since you're awake, could you make us both coffee? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or 
I could really go for coffee right now. And she said, yeah, me too. And I'd then say, great, make me a cup when you go make yourself a cup. Right? Oh, you just leave it and then it's just passive aggressive. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which, you know, you know me well enough to know that I would never do that. Mm. But, but nonetheless, the as yourself in my marriage, that's the as yourself. Is when she does that for me, it makes me want to be better. Yeah, maybe, maybe diagnostically, we're talking not about love in a motivation kind of way. Mm-mm. We're really talking about love as an action, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and <clears throat> for myself personally, I hate, and I use that term because it's the strongest term that I can think of. I hate talking about love in the abstract because it's so yeah. self-serving. Well, well, and that's what motivation is all about because it's always mixed. Is yeah. what the point you're making. Right. Yes, it's it's for you and it's also for me. <laughs> right, it is. It's a symbol. It really is living the living again, living in the tension that is I am simultaneously sinful in myself and righteous in Christ through faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That if I looked at myself and said, Well, the reason I love my wife is because I'm such a great person. That's a lie. And right. as Kierkegaard points out, that's the inescapable way that the as yourself clings to my self-love. Mm-hmm. Is that even when I say it, I know I'm lying to myself, even if nobody else knows it that I'm lying. So people can say, you're a great husband, you're a great father, you're a great pastor, or people can say, you're a terrible husband, a terrible father, a terrible pastor. I don't care. Because the only the only opinion that matters in this context is my wife, my children, and my congregation, whom I serve. Mm-hmm. If they say, you're doing a good job, that's it. If they say, hey, I'm kinda, I got a question. Okay, what's your question? Like you were saying with Luther walking down the street, he would stop and give you the time of day because whatever was coming up in relation to him in that moment, that was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And so likewise, I try and live that way. Yeah. We've talked about that before, I think, on the show, but being yeah. present, you know. Yeah, just being, again, being present and being present tense so that you're not even waiting for your opportunity to talk. You're mm-hmm. just listening to the other person. Like I was saying, I was talking to... Was I talking to Annie about this last night? Yeah. Or no, I just no, I was talking to you about it. I'm sorry. It's been a rough week. Um I was talking on this podcast about it. That you confuse uh, me with your wife is concern, but that's anyway. true. Well, we talk about it as often as you and my wife and I do. But um <laughs> that's that No, now I've completely lost the thread, but <laughs> I hijacked my own thread. Is that possible? It is. <clears throat> Squirrel. But no, I was saying is that asking other people more questions than offering answers mm. or not waiting for my opportunity to talk about myself, but rather listening to them talk and then asking them more questions mm-hmm. to help them suss out whatever it is they're working through without interjecting myself into their world, their life, their thoughts, and also accepting if they want to know about my life, they'll ask me. They'll say something. Yeah. And maybe right now they don't care because they're so deep in their own trouble mm-hmm. or their own need to just have somebody to bounce stuff off of. They just need me to listen and ask more questions. And maybe the best way for me to be their neighbor right now, the best way for me to love them is to actually ask those questions in such a way that it leads them in a direction that they want to go with this. And that at a different time, maybe they'll ask me about myself. But if they never do, who cares? Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's not why I'm here. Excuse me. So I like that. I like that. That quote by Kierkegaard. I think it is helpful. It's pretty heady stuff. Yeah. So Luther shows, this is now going back to Peter's, Luther shows in his interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, on Matthew 7, verse 12, how God's outer grip by means of the estates and his inner call in conscience interlock. Don't worry, Luther provides an example. Mm -hmm. If you are a craftsman, you find the Bible, the Law and the Prophets, placed in your workshop, in your hand, in your heart, which teaches and preaches to you how you are to do to the neighbor. 
Just look at your tools, your needle, your thimble, your beer barrel, your comb, your scales, uh, L and measure. You would have this verse engraved on it. All this cries out over you, my dear man. Use me in such a way in relation to your neighbor as you want him to deal with you with his property. Hmm. So that's the overlap. The as yourself that is at work in your heart comes out in your vocation. That's what he means by estates. Yeah. You have the priestly estate, the political estate, and the familial estate. Family, politicians, priests. Right. Well, like you outlined, pastor, father, husband. Exactly. Citizen. You didn't mention citizen. Citizen, but, right. Yeah, citizenry right now is a little strange challenging. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange thing, for sure. But um, I think more than ever, this, to your point, I think more than ever, this is when we need people with integrity to stand up. Yeah. And lead by example in the way of unity in the way of building bridges instead of burying, you know, burning them down, instead of emphasizing our individual differences as a way of dividing us, emphasizing our individual differences as the thing that actually make us better collectively. Yeah. That, well, how does a choir function? If, a choir, if everybody in the choir sings the exact same note in the exact same register, we're all altos, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting for maybe a song or two. But the thing that makes a choir great are the different parts and the harmonies and the melodies and the interplay of the voices. Mm-hmm. And I can just go listen to the good, the bad, and the ugly and listen to the chorus in that, the choir and the soloists in the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's amazing. That's the, uh, what is that? The the National Orchestra of Denmark or whatever. Yeah, I don't remember. Danish, the Danish uh, orchestra. I think I sent you that video, didn't I? No. That they did that in a fistful of dollars. Oh, they're wonderful. Live performances. Well, and I was, you know, I was thinking about harmony and and you can actually use that to your advantage as well. Um, there's the one uh, quartet, the Anonymous Four. Do you know mm-hmm. them? Yeah. yeah, female voices, and they're very very similar voices. Yeah, hence the anonymous part. Actually, I think it's not that the the actual uh, makeup of the group has changed over the years. But but regardless, their voices are so similar that then when they have their harmonies, it's like it's kind of like the chorus effect on a pop song where you have the same yeah, right. singer singing multiple times. Uh, but it has its own sense of beauty there because there's still harmony, even though they're similar. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my point. If you want to love your neighbors yourself, build bridges, seek unity, build each other up, encourage each other, motivate each other. And that's kind of the point of life is to love each other and be kind to each other. And That's yet, why Luther would write a letter to his barber. Right, right exactly. That's why to push the, with the broom, uh, <laughs> right. broom mistress, I guess. Yeah. For Wittenberg. And, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that he bankrolled his publisher. <laughs> right. <laughs> By letting him live in his basement. But that the as yourself that Luther's after, that Kierkegaard picks up and carries, is really. I don't know. I think it's the fundamental challenge in every generation. I think that's really what we've been talking about this whole podcast. Is it works great in theory. It sounds good, but to do it in an actual practice, it's very messy and it's very painful. Like we were talking about with regards to the vocation of ministry. It can be very painful because giving up on ourself and only seeking the good of the neighbor and not making demands, not pointing fingers, not justifying our needs over and against our neighbor's needs, that's a difficult task for anybody. Mm. And like I said, that's why there's so many religions. That's why there's so many philosophies. That's why there's so many counselors and lawyers and psychologists and psychiatrists. Because we know 
in our heart, like you were talking about in those, in those places that we can't reach with our, with our imagination, mm. there's something going on in us that we just can't fix. We can't escape it. We can't fix it. And I think this is the problem with hero worship, right? Is that hero worship is essentially us trying to find somebody that we can build up, prop up to make them into the ideal version of ourself. Yeah. And, that, and, try, and just integrate them into us. Right. That we can live through their heroicness, whatever that might be. But the problem with that is that our heroes, typically the people that we choose as our heroes, don't know us, don't care about us, mm-hmm. and can't be bothered if we did walk up to them. If we Even if we had access to them and walked up to them, whether it's a sports hero or uh, a war veteran, a war hero, uh, a movie star, a rock star, mm-hmm. politician, whatever it may be. Um, if they don't have your phone number in their phone and they won't return your texts, they're not your hero. Right. And if, then yeah. there's the fundamental problem is that they are just as flawed as we are. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Unless they're they Mr. Rogers, feet. I guess. But <laughs> Well, even Mr. Rogers had clay feet to a certain extent. There are certain things that he was going to do on, that he did on a show to break down barriers. And there's other things that he wouldn't touch on a show to break down barriers mm-hmm. because of his Christian faith. Mm-hmm. That at the end of the day, he was, still was... Uh, somewhat conservative in his Christian faith. And there was just some political things and some, yeah, issues that he just didn't want to touch on his show because mm-hmm. he thought they would be confusing for children. Yeah. And so after the fact, of course, he's accused of being uh, prejudiced towards toward certain groups. But I think within re- regards to the time in which he lived, he was very courageous. Mm-hmm. And yet, like you said, he's just a man. Yeah. He's just a man. And he's just doing the best he could with what he had at that time and the platform that he had. And this, I was asked to do this for my, my kids at school asked to do this because um, they have these tests this week and uh, I'm supposed to write them a letter to encourage them to take tests, <laughs> which again, knowing, you know me, you know me. I'm like, this is not a good idea. Cause, and then of course, Annie who loves me as herself says, you got to write this cause you're the person who's good with words. And I said, you're doing this to punish me, aren't you? And she goes, no, I just, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but uh, so I just decided to, to hijack the whole purpose of the letter. And I wrote about how my, I wrote to my daughter and my son. And I said, you're my hero. And I described what a hero is and what a hero isn't. Mm-hmm. Because I know that teachers have taught them the opposite. <laughs> and and it, that's to my point is that uh, if you're choosing someone to be your hero who won't, bail you out when you're in trouble, who won't show up for you when you need a ride, who doesn't even know your name, you've chosen the wrong hero. Because a person who's a hero is someone who will show up for you and will answer the phone call, answer the text, show up at your door, give you the ride, bail you out, sit next to your bed with you, but that they're with you all the time. They're there for you all the time. And so for me, that term gets thrown around too much. And we, you know, our spiritual heroes, we use it very loosely. But in the end of the day, for me, it's my kids because they, again, motivate me to want to be a better person. And I think that's what heroes do in a very there's, broad sense. There's really only one hero that you can actually truly worship. I knew you were going there. I just, I was waiting well, you for you set to it, tee up. it off. You set it up. I know I did. I did. I put the ball on the tee for you. All right. Should we say it? Oh, well, anyway. Maybe <laughs> Jesus it was is my hero. I hope you're going to say Jesus and not Moses. Uh, yeah, no, Jesus. <laughs> Well, I mean, that truly is um, always there for you. And actually, like you said, that you can actually bring into your own character. You can bring it into yourself. Right, exactly. You know, it's not I who live, but Christ who is in me who does these things. Right, exactly. And so the very fact that I 
even want to to consider those things, I consider a fruit of the spirit. Mm. Because if you look at the works of the flesh, uh, telling my children that they're awesome and that I'm proud of them and they're my hero and here are the reasons why, not in the works of the flesh. It doesn't come right after envy. It doesn't come between envy and strife. Mm. <laughs> and yet the fruits of the spirits, long suffering, gentleness, kindness, and all of these things. Um, in our earthly vocations, this is how that fruit works itself out. Mm-hmm. Is that in everything we are pointed towards Christ. Even in our vocations, we can still be pointed towards Christ by the Spirit because in my Christian vocation, I recognize I'm not concerned with these things all the time. I don't allow them to consume my thoughts if I'm not faced up to the grace of God and Jesus Christ. I just, I'm just i just not. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's non-Christians who would argue against me and say that's a false uh supposition or a false conclusion but i can honestly say based on my own personal history that yeah i could i could say that based on my own personal history i would like to be a better father husband because i just didn't see that growing up i didn't have that you know exhibited to me but yet to take it to the next level for me anyways it's all about the gospel Hmm. that forgiveness has freed me up from having to sit there and covet my my faults and not be able to say to my own children, this is a problem. And I need yeah. to admit that to you. I'm damaged and I need you to hold me accountable. Hmm. Like, I, I don't think without absolution, I can actually make that that statement out loud, especially as an adult talking to a child. Yeah, because it's it's self-destructive, right? It's very self-destructive. And what's the backstop of that confession other than you're just admitting you're not a, you're not a good person or you're mm-hmm. not a whole person, you're damaged, or that you'll never be the father they want you to be. Yeah. Like how, what, what comes after that other than I'm sorry, please forgive me. And yeah, they can forgive you in a neighborly sense, but in relation to baptism, in relation to Christ crucified for you, that forgiveness has its end point, its terminus at the cross. So that you can even say you weren't the father that I wanted you to be. You weren't the husband I needed you to be. You weren't the pastor that we needed or expected or wanted or whatever, mm-hmm. but you're the one I've been given. And therefore, we got we to gotta sit down and figure out, we got to reason together about how you are gift for me or mm-hmm. how you are not gift for me. And I don't believe you can use the language of giftedness outside of faith in Christ. Yeah. Not, not unless you're gritting your teeth real hard, because, of course, there are many days in your vocation, no matter what it is, where it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah, sucks. And it's hard to say thank you. <laughs> right, it's hard to say thank you. And you say, it's all a gift. <laughs> that semi-maniacal laughter. Right. It's all a gift. But you know it's not. You're lying to yourself. And and maybe you're just being sarcastic and joking about it, but it, there are those times when you have to really force yourself to, to hang on this is a gift. Even when you're arguing with someone else, even mm. when you're in conflict, it's still a gift. Because the conflict at base is, I'm not going to give myself away. You don't get me. Period. You can come over here to my side of the street, but I'm not coming over to your side of the street. I've done that too many times. And think about this in relation to forgiveness then. How many times are we to forgive? Mm. Seven times, 77. Right. Versus, I'll forgive you seven times, but after that, you're on your own. So you can turn the other cheek, but you only have two cheeks. So Right, exactly. After that, it's over. <laughs> right, exactly. What, do you, then you turn back the first cheek again? I, right. Yeah. This is why we treat things like Matthew 18 as if they're punitive texts. Mm. We'll call you before the congregation so we can punish you. 
step one, step two, step three, and then it's all over. Right, exactly. Hmm. Versus, no, we we were given two keys, one to open and one to close. And the purpose of Matthew 18 ultimately is reconciliation, not Mm -hmm. punishment. But how often do we use the office as a form of, of, of penalizing someone for being naughty? Yeah, it seems like the only thing that we probably uh, should bind is sin, death, and devil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, even pastorally, this is really my distinction, too, as a pastor. As you come to me and confess your sin, I will absolve you. But if you've committed adultery, we're going to go talk to your, your wife or your husband. Mm-hmm. Because Christ's forgiveness does not set you free from your earthly responsibilities. It sets you free to be for your earthly responsibilities. Yeah, without fear of judgment. Because what's the point? Well, again, the extreme case of adultery, you love yourself more than you love your spouse. That's why you did what you did. Mm-hmm. So your con- your confession at base is, I loved myself more than my spouse, and that's why I did this. And there's nothing well, more <laughs> self-sacrificial yeah. than to give up, give that up yeah. and, and admit you're failing. Exactly. To, to go before someone who could say, we're tearing up our marriage contract, and I'm taking the kids, and I'm leaving. Like, and by the way, who's going who's gonna to keep going to church on Sunday? Who's going to get the house? Who's going to do all this? Are you so free in Christ that you can give her the house? Are you so free in Christ that you could leave the church and go find a different church? Like, how free in Christ are you on account of that absolution? Mm-hmm. Because that's self-giving right there. The ultimate self-giving is to say, Christ gave his life for me. I turned that, I used that for my own benefit. It destroyed my family. And now the least I can do is sacrifice my needs in the present tense so that you have a place to stay. Don't worry about the, the mortgage. I'll pay the mortgage. Don't worry about the kids. I'll give you gas money. I'll pay the groceries. Don't worry about it. This is my fault. I did this. I own this. Like it's it's a, it can go deep down that that hole mm. once you're free. Yeah, and transactionally, <laughs> right? That may still come back to benefit you. I mean, it's not. Right. The, it right. shouldn't be your motivation, but it's going to be right. caught up in that, I suppose, too. Well, again, because we're we're living in that tension of the symbol. We're not living in with one foot. You know, we're not living with two feet over on this side or that side. But we're living solidly in the tension between. I am old Adam. I am a sinner. I'm yeah. going to sin. Well, we but always new- hope that restitution right. is going to come back to benefit us. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. Ultimately, that's why we say the sorry. <laughs> I talk about this in Bible study Sunday all the time, right? It's like, as much as you know that you confess because you're already forgiven, you still think you have to confess mm. to be forgiven. You still want that. Even though you know there's no transaction to be had, you still treat me like you got to put quarters in the machine. <laughs> You know, that's the, the the confusion of Easter Sunday when I turn around and absolve everyone without a confession, even though we make seven other confessions during the service. Mm-hmm, right. They're like, no, this confession is the one. This is the one that earns me that. I'm like, you do realize we confess our sin in the Lord's Prayer. We confess our sin in the service of the sacrament. We confess our sins in many of the hymns we're singing. Like, we're constantly confessing our sin. Why are you fixating on this one thing? Because step one, step two, step three. This that's is the right. way it works, Pastor. Don't mess up our system. That's the problem with the gospel. It's it creates messy, messy, messy lives because it yeah, sets you free <laughs> to be a sinner. <laughs> we want to. We actually want to bind the gospel. We want to. Yeah, of course. Put it in a particular order or fashion. It's not that Christ didn't institute it to, to give it in certain ways, um, but we want we want to kind of mandate how that works out through our obedience. Mm-hmm. It's no. not about love. It's about obedience. Every time I, I firmly believe we, the reason that we want to stress obedience over and against love is because we reject the gospel. Mm. Because what is the fruit of faith? Love. And not just, again, it's not my love. It's selfless love. It's caritas. It's charity. It's unconditional, limitless, measureless love. It's what, that, what can I do for you? 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. We hate that because the person that we're asking that of has already taken too much from us to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And it might put us in an awkward spot where we're like, oh, I'm not really prepared to do that for you. Exactly. So why bother with, with selfless love, which I have no control over, mm-hmm. which makes me appear to other people to be weak and a pushover, a wet blanket, all this stuff, when I can just assert that really, if you want to show God how much you love him, be obedient. And therefore, I can measure that. And if you're disobedient, it's because you don't love God. Yeah. Versus, I'm going to love you selflessly. In fact, I'm going to love you so selflessly that people are actually going to get your sin confused with me. That people are going to accuse me of being sinful or encouraging you to sin because I got down in the ditch and picked you up and carried you out. Yeah. What do they call that? Guilt by association. Good. You know, that's Luther's uh, sermon on... Um, what's that? Um... Sermon on the Great Commandment, mm. where Luther says that love, that Christ sets us free to get down in the ditch with our neighbor, put him on our shoulders, and not only carry him out of the ditch, but make his sin our sin, just mm. as Christ has made our sin his. That Christ became sin for us so that we might become sin for our neighbor. Yeah. That is devastating. It's heavy. I know it's devastating because I keep bringing it up in church, and people are still wrestling with it, and I haven't preached that in over a year. Yeah. Well, because it uh, instead of kind of setting up a perimeter of safety, um, it, it opens up both you, your congregation, if you're if you're preaching this, um, to any and all sorts of folks, right? Exactly, because any and all sorts of folks are focused on obedience, mm-hmm. not on love, mm-hmm. and yet love. This is the, through faith we fulfill the commandments. Now we're set free to love our neighbors ourselves. But that as yourself, as we, we've been talking about, that's where everything hinges, I think. Because if you hate yourself, well, think about it. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, I have to show God that I love him by being obedient to the law, but I can't be obedient to the law. I keep breaking the law. I keep being disobedient to the law. My motives of my heart contradict my actions or my words. And therefore, I know I'm not being obedient, which then lends me, leads me to not love my neighbor. Because my neighbor is reminding me of my disobedience because I look at my neighbor and say, well, you're not really doing what I'm doing. You're not trying to live the way I live. So therefore, you must be wronger than I am. Hmm. So I may be disobedient, but you're way more disobedient than I am. So you love God less than I do. So as long as I get a B minus and you get a C minus, I'm going to get on the bus ahead of you, which is ironic that we think there's a like a hierarchy in heaven. <laughs> like The goodest of the good little boys get to go to the front of the line and the baddest of the good little boys have to sit in the back row in the nosebleed seats but it's like we we focus on obedience which then causes us to try and annihilate our neighbor and then by trying to annihilate our neighbor it drives us deeper into the need to be obedient because we're constantly raising the stakes it's like i have to be more obedient than you Hmm. and i have to do more than you it's all performance based it's all transactional and so what little i see you doing i have to do more so if you're a great preacher i have to be an even greater preacher if people if I go to your church and people can't stop talking about how awesome you are, when I come back to my church, I have to be even more awesomer than you because my people don't talk about me that way. Hmm. Right? Yeah. It's just a constant pursuit of what's next and the next best thing and the next highest thing and the better thing because I've got to be better than you because remember, God's going to judge me. I remember uh, someone coming up to me and saying, well, what kind of, what, what kind of Lutheran are you? Like, yeah. Uh, well, we're affiliated with the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And like, are those the strict Lutherans? <laughs> I'm yeah. like, well, 
uh, on the spectrum of things, you know, it's kind of like right. the autistic spectrum, but anyway, yeah. uh, maybe not as strict as some and certainly not as loose as others. Mm-hmm. You're like, but, but that statement kind of betrays the fact that, that we maybe try to set ourselves up to be known by some kind of standard, right? In this yeah. case, you know, obedience to the law or whatever they mean by strict, like we only sing out of the hymnal. I mean, it can mean any number of things who even knows, but but that we want to be known by something other than um, charity, love, mercy, grace, <laughs> um, you know. And some people use those things then as excuses and say, look, we're more welcoming than you are because we have whatever, rainbow flag out in front of our church right. or something. Yeah. You know, All are welcome here. I like that. All are welcome here. As if they That's aren't... where we've gotten to as a church. Well, that's where we've gotten to as a church, though. Publicly, that's where we've gotten to is that the church isn't seen as a place that welcomes all people. It's a place that segregates out people. So some churches have to. Right, exactly. Some churches feel like they have to virtue signal. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) That that's their, that is how they're going to appeal to people that drive by that sign. Which again, it's, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think it's, Mm. it's sad that we've gotten to that place as a, as a church in the United States that people don't see the church as a place where everybody's welcome. Yeah, but like it, to your point, then that's the reason is because more people think about behavior modification when they think about church than love, right? And we get this the other side of uh, on the other side of the equation too is talking about like liturgically, right? Yeah. Well, we have you know historic worship, or mm-hmm. we're we're we only sing the best of Lutheran hymnody or something yes. like that. And you know, in one sense, there's there's probably good in that. I hope so. Um, because I'm of that conviction, you know, that there are better hymns than others. <laughs> but it's still it's still the best based on my criteria or the criteria right. of, of our group, our little yeah. gang. And don't you want to be a part of that? <laughs> exactly. Don't you want to be a part of our tribe, our gang? Because mm. we've got the best gang, the most faithful Orthodox gang, over and against all those other groups who are not as faithful and Orthodox as us, or not as welcoming as us, or not as loving as us, or not as obedient as us. And it it's it's... Well, it's just sad, really. In the end, it's just yeah. sad. Well, you you probably you probably encounter this when you interact with non-members, mm-hmm. uh, like with a funeral, for example, and they make very specific requests. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sometimes that make you very uncomfortable, saying well, that's not really our practice. I'd rather not do that, or rather right. not sing that. Um, and I don't know. Maybe I've come around a little bit on this, but just to recognize, sometimes the best thing you can do for your neighbor is to sing the weak hymn. I was right. going to say most, that's kind of what funerals are for <laughs> in our, in our congregation that it really is. That's the, that is the opening for my old ladies to get their favorite Methodist hymns mm-hmm. sung mm-hmm. <clears throat> because they know they're not happening. It's not happening on Sunday. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, you're right. How great thou art. Amazing grace. Right. You, you're going to get those in the garden is a no go. Uh, anyway, she, unless it's a tragedy of epic proportions, there's no way in the gardens <laughs> getting sung. Right. The point is, is that you, uh, you know, as a pastor, you are willing to make some sacrifices of absolutely your ego. <laughs> because there's certain hills that you shouldn't die on for the mm-hmm. sake of love, mm-hmm. right? If, if you if you ask to sing two hymns at a funeral service and there's four or five hymns, those other three hymns, I'm just going to use those like God's own child, I gladly say it, or whatever. Uh, yeah, they're going to be so solidly grounded in baptism in Christ that go ahead. And by the way, my sermon is going to have nothing to do with the hymns that you want sung. So. At the end, as long as I get the concluding hymn and the opening hymn, you can have all the other hymns. <laughs> yeah, it's a give and take. As long as I get the last word in the sense of Christ getting the last word, mm-hmm. I don't care what we sing during the middle of the service. Mm. You know, your soloist or whatever. Because You again, won't remember it anyway. 
You won't. And what you will remember, though, is that I was kind to you and I loved you and I listened to you mm-hmm. at a time at a time when emotionally, mentally, you're a complete wreck. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the last thing that you want for me, especially if it's your husband, wife, it's a child, the last thing you want from me is to say, no, 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 that's not what we do. We don't do that here. You don't want to hear that because all that is an attack. Mm-hmm. And it's attack on your dead son. It's attack on your grandma. It's attack on your dad. That's what they hear it as, an attack. No to them is an attack. Even if you explain it evangelically, it still sounds <laughs> like you don't care. All you care about is what you want versus listening and asking the question, hmm, okay, I understand why you want to see this because you haven't been to church in 40 years. And the last thing that you remember about your church was this was your favorite hymn. Yeah. Here, have it. It's like eulogies. You know, I just put the eulogy before the service starts. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I know it's coming. Yeah. And I know if I say, you know, keep it to five minutes, it's going to be 10. But people need that. They need to vent. And sure, they don't know they're confessing their sin and unbelief. I do. Yeah. And ideally, it doesn't need to be in the church. I mean, it can be no, done ideally. in another context. <laughs> right. And he, yeah, and that's for me as a pastor, though, to, to the point that is me trying to love my neighbors myself in the sense of if I was in this situation, how would I want a pastor to handle this? If I hadn't been to church in X number of years or the church that I came from, this is their practice. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that there's different kinds of Lutheran <laughs> or whatnot. And and the same thing when I go to another funeral, when I go to a funeral at a different church, I've got to just shut up and ride because it's not my church. It's not my congregation. So my comments have no place there. Yeah. Because it's, just, it's not helpful. It's not loving. No. Even if and, it's true. Right, I mean, exactly. That, that's that's the awkwardness of it all. Right. It's like we want to be proclaimers of the truth and of what is right. good and pure and right and all that, um, but not everybody's there today. Right. right. And, you know, shepherd gently lead me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's like one of my favorite people ever taught me this saying that honesty without love is wrath. And love mm. without honesty is sentimentality. That you need both. Mm. That honesty without any love is just wrath. It's just furious anger. But yet love without honesty is just sentimentality. It's just slappy, gushy, rom-com type of stuff. You need honesty with love. You need love with honesty. And mm. that's the tension too, is to hold those two things in tension to say, I, I want to tell the truth. I want to be honest. I want to maintain my integrity. But I love my neighbors myself. Maybe this is not the forum to do this. Yeah, I can still tell my neighbor, not today though. Maybe this conversation needs to happen in three months or three years or whenever. But like Kierkegaard's point too in that quote was, in relation to eternity, I've got time. Yeah, But in relation to my own timetable, it's got to happen right now. It's got to be immediate because I got to be right. And I have to be justified because my heart wants what it wants. Hmm. And this is the danger of craving, coveting something like being right or being orthodox or being more than the other is that it does lead, the temptation is to virtue signal. The temptation is to humble brag. The temptation is to hold yourself up as an example for others versus I must decrease that he may increase. And therefore, how can I in a very kind, loving way emphasize Jesus Christ the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sin of the world over and against this God talk that has nothing to do with death and resurrection. 
Hmm. Like, how do I have that conversation <clears throat> with people who may have never even been taught the difference? Yeah. And at least pastorally, you have one occasion mm-hmm. or at least yeah. one moment yeah. um, in, in all of these settings. It's when they ask right. you to preach. Right. Exactly. Right. No pressure. <laughs> right. But I mean, that that's it. Yeah, um, and it you can you can undermine <clears throat> in a helpful way sometimes everything mm-hmm. else that's been said, yeah. um, or or at least correct if you like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. or direct or redirect. I mm-hmm. mean, there's lots of different ways you can go with that. Yeah. But that's your opportunity, and they give that to you, and they and they actually want you to do it. Exactly, and it opens up the possibility in the future, an opportunity in the future for them to come back, mm-hmm. and actually can carry. I've had people who have come to funerals who don't go to church who now come to church. Yeah, I have you to. know, and it was through, I can't really say that I walked away, went, I killed that. I nailed that. But they came back and said, I was so impressed by the sermon, or I've had people pass me notes after funerals where they mm-hmm. just wrote, thank you on the note. I have that mm-hmm. hanging in my office at church. It just says, thank you on the note. That's all it says. But it was written by someone who hadn't been to church in decades. And that was the one and only time I ever met that person. And yet when she walked out, she handed me this little slip of paper and just kept on going to the parking lot. And I never saw her again and just said, thank you. And I know what she meant because she sat right in front of the pulpit and she yeah. started crying as soon as I got into the sermon yeah. and she didn't stop crying until the sermon was over. So I know what she meant. And yeah, I could take credit for that. I want to take credit for it, mm-hmm. but I can't because mm-hmm. I know it wasn't me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just the instrument. And therefore in that moment, all I can say is thank God that the gospel opened her up. Yep. In such a way that she received what she needed. And hopefully then, even if she never comes back to my congregation, that that sermon drove her to go find a path, another preacher, to go find a church, to go find a preacher, because she needed more of that. Mm-hmm. She had that hunger and that thirst now. And ultimately, I think for us as Christians in our vocations, our earthly vocations, and we talked about this in previous shows too, the Krantz episode, we talked about this with regards to like your mom as a teacher. Through our works of mercy, through our loving our neighbors, ourself, we are opening up the opportunity to talk to our neighbor about Jesus in whatever forum that happens at. And again, like I said, I'm standing there on the mat with my friend Brittany and we're surrounded by other people who are listening to us talk about the priorities of fighting versus serving God. And that conversation isn't going to happen if she and I aren't having it. No, it's not a common conversation. No, and yet now that we've had the conversation, it's come up in relation to other conversations I have with other people I train with. Mm. And I didn't seek it out. It just happened. They're like, hey, I, I was listening to you. You know, I heard you or I overheard you talking with Brittany the other night about such and such. Um, I just wanted to ask. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, um, and all just because of that, just because of making it a point for myself of emphasis, and maybe this is the point of, of, of actually Christian obedience, if we want to use the term in a positive sense, because the Bible does, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that, and especially since we're past two hours, so most people have gotten frustrated with me talking about obedience and love have quit. But that really Christian obedience is nothing other than seeking after Christ. As gift, I should say. Christ as gift, not as Christ, Christ as Moses, as example of godly obedience. Because who can, who, who can really imitate Jesus? Nobody. Yeah. Not not well. <laughs> right. God already has one Christ. He doesn't need a whole bunch of Christs. He needs a whole bunch of Christians, but yeah. let Christ be Christ and be a Christian. That's the thing. And realize too, accept that wherever you're standing in whatever vocation you have, whether it's student, coworker, family member, current, you know, just Christian brother and sister, it's a gift. 
that your cross is a gift and that that gift is killing the old Adam. So it hurts. It's painful. It's a struggle. But yet that cross is also what frees you up to be for Christ, mm -hmm. to live with Christ and, and to live through faith in Christ and not have to worry about whether you're doing a godly thing or an ungodly thing. Just ask yourself, you know, am I loving my, am I loving my neighbor as myself? How yeah. is this loving my neighbor? How am I giving up on myself and then giving myself to my neighbor for the sake of love? And likewise, to protect yourself from your neighbor abusing you, how is your neighbor using you as an opportunity to love themselves, not love you? You know, the example I always use is when someone asks you how they can help you, do they add an if then to it? If you want my help, then you have to do this or you have to do this or you have to do this versus how can I help full stop? Yeah, that's that transactional language we right. talked about before. I'll forgive you if and then versus of course I forgive you. It's There's nothing that needs to be forgiven. It's all done. It's forgiven. Um, like I said, that that requires us to to step back and reflect though on what are we being asked to do and what is being asked of us? versus the other person saying, what can I do for you? And that's that's the struggle. That's the struggle of our Christian life, really. That's the struggle that is inherent in the third use of the law, because the old Adam is struggling to not die, and the new man in Christ is struggling to kill the old Adam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that works its way out practically in our vocations. Yeah. Which is why you can never not need to hear the gospel. We should probably read the last sentence here. Mm -hmm. uh, on the next page, Luther diametrically juxtaposes the commandment of love of neighbor as right. summarizing the second table of the Decalogue to self-love, because also here he looks first and last on the one who alone was the selfish man who was open to his fellow men. Yeah, right. You know? Right. And then a little later to that point, he discussed, distinguishes between the law as the Decalogue records it and Christian law or evangelical law, which is the law of Christ, Lex Christi. And the law of grace, as Paul calls it, that mm -hmm. what is what is the rule of law that governs our life? Is it the Decalogue or is it grace? According to Paul, it's actually grace. Yeah. Well, because as kind of as I was trying to explain that the, the Decalogue, it does reveal God's law. Yeah. Uh, but not uh, maybe in a, in, in a survey sense, like it completely surveys the law. Mm -hmm. But as far as the particularity of how that works out, um, we don't go with the rabbis with their or the the uh, mm -hmm. Pharisees, I should say, with their six hundred and eighteen, right? You know, very specific nuances of right. of the Decalogue. Um, we we actually aren't as prescriptive as they are, right? Um, you know, the law is, is more descriptive of Christ, and uh, and then that's lived out in that we live in Christ. Yeah, exactly. what that looks like for you mm, may look different than than it does for me. You know, right? And if you're busy pointing your finger or shaking your head at your neighbor, well. Maybe you're you're looking the wrong direction. Yeah, you should love your church and your wife and your children yeah. the way I do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you you should be a pastor the way that I'm a pastor. Mm, no, I shouldn't because uh, the congregation that I've been given is the gift that was given to me, not you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the call to serve my congregation, yeah, there are certain absolutes for sure. Uh, preach Christ, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Hand out the gifts, exercise the office of keys. You know all the things that are in my call documents. Um, how that works itself out in day-to-day -day practice uh, looks different everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a congregation of uh, Scandinavian farmers. Right. I don't really either anymore. I have a lot of blue-collar commuters. From, so, all, from all ethnicities. Every from. direction, every, yeah, different directions, different backgrounds. It's crazy. Although I am still praying for that one billionaire to walk through the door. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that would be great. Uh, so, no, I got nothing else. You got anything else? No, that's good. Let's cover, uh, let's see. So subscribe, go subscribe, mm-hmm. download the podcast, send it to yes. friends, email it to friends, text friends, tell friends about it. Uh, go ahead and write a review for us, please. It helps uh, bump us up Where? on iTunes. Right? Yes, on iTunes. Even if you just rate it, give it five stars, four yeah. stars, whatever it but is. But it does. It helps get the podcast traction and it gets up that the iTunes list so that more people actually see it and mm-hmm. it gets out there. And because I don't, here's my thing. I don't really think this podcast is just for people in the LCMS. Mm. No, I don't I either. think this is, one, obviously it's applicable to Lutherans. It's as Lutheran as it gets. I get that. But I think the conversation that we're having, even if it provokes and angers you, is still provoking you to think. And have a conversation mm-hmm. and go out and buy books. The number of people that have texted me to tell me that they buy these books and they're enjoying reading them has been really rewarding in its own sense. Because I'm just happy people are reading books, good books, you know, solid yeah. books. And so at the very least, yeah, this is a Lutheran podcast. It's a Higher Things podcast. We are LCMS pastors. But I hope that the way in which we approach these topics, that it's open to more than just folks in the LCMS. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that all Lutherans can listen and appreciate, and even non-Lutherans, people who are Lutheran curious. Because I know, uh, not a lot, but many of my friends who are not Lutheran but are Lutheran curious benefit from the book reading. Yeah. Because then, because I have people that live in Alabama, I have people that live overseas that don't have access to a Lutheran church. And ordering books off of Amazon, in a lo- in large part, is their only access to Lutheran theology on a daily basis. So if you haven't really thought about it, yeah, giving this podcast to other people who are Lutheran or curious about Lutheran teaching. That's kind of what we're trying to do here is have that conversation. So, well, and a shout out then to one of the reviewers, uh, RS couch, I think Yeah, uh, he says, if you're exploring Lutheranism from some other Christian denomination, I highly recommend listening to this. You'll be simultaneously offended <laughs> and, <laughs> there you go. and yet given all the information you need to decide whether this church body is quote for you. Nice. And also, Adman87, one-star review, but shout out, referring to Muslims, quote, they don't live in ghettos, so that makes it tricky. Typical Muslims have a secret agenda that don't assimilate to our culture. Hmm. They are under no obligation to attend church, eat grape nuts, and shop at Costco because... (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I work with Muslims. I wouldn't have known uh, we're Muslims. So I don't know. We must have made some comment about Muslims at some point. Yeah, that's okay. I was I was speaking about my own experience. If I didn't say that, I was speaking about my own personal experience and interaction with Muslims where I live at. So oh, I if I you. spoke if I spoke in a kind of ubiquitous sense, I apologize. One has an eagle holding an American flag on the tire cover of his Jeep, which is sufficiently redneck for me. So I, I guess that makes you American. I don't know. So <laughs> thanks for the review. <laughs> also, Do I have? A, I don't have any. Do you have an eagle on your hubcap? No, I'm not super patriotic. Okay. I actually think we should restore the monarchy, as I said at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> the uh, Earth is the center of the universe, and the monarchy does rule. Uh, so I there. think I did suggest on a previous show that maybe the Revolutionary War was an unjust war. Oh, anyway. A little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to figure out which one of us has an eagle on our hubcap. No, th- that he has a Muslim friend that does. Oh, okay. I got you. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm following. Well, yep. that's a good re- I like that review, though. That's a good review. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's hilarious. Honest. That's right. So grape anyways, nuts in yeah. Costco. I, I, man, I can't I, think of the last time I had grape nuts. Ugh, that's horrible. That's what that's I, that's pheasant food, man. That's what cleans out your craw <laughs> and breaks teeth. Ugh. 
the fact that I that you you put two tablespoons of sugar on grape nuts before you pour the milk over them tells you what you're eating. Plus, they were invented by a guy who thought eating them would actually drive lust out of you. No, so. I was going to say it cures you of all sorts of mental illness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mental illness too. So yeah, leave reviews, please. Uh, positive reviews are obviously welcomed. And if you leave a negative review, please make it humorous because I enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, that was good. Thanks. That, that was fantastic. Uh, even if you didn't mean it to be a humorous, I thought it was humorous. Um, or I found humor in it, so I appreciate it. Oh, he's a and, PhD in biochemistry too. Oh, nice. And contributes a hell of a lot to the state. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Man. In other words, he pays taxes. Oh, All right. Good. Uh, well, Virtuous neighbor. I was going to say, is there a dust cover's worth of information in that review? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome uh go buy gillespie's coffee go check out the ht website go listen to gospel boldly podcast uh what else is that it well and with with the coffee yeah. and vocationally um i did think of this actually that you know i'd really love for you to buy the single origin you know the single estate coffees mm-hmm. which are f- fantastic you're liking oh, the ethiopian right now oh, it's so good dude right i think that's from a co-op actually um a women's co-op but uh, I also have blends because I know that's a good way to love your neighbor. But some people just want to have like the same coffee every day. And for lack of a better word, it's boring. But, yeah. but you know, coffee is utilitarian for some folks. And so I love you too. And you can buy a blend and enjoy that as well. Sure. <laughs> that Ethiopian is so good that I'm actually afraid that I'm going to start drinking coffee all day long again. <laughs> oh, it'll do that too. Like I want to drink it just because it's so good. <laughs> Well, I did. I did happen to order an extra fifty pounds of that. So. Oh, good! I'll have Annie reorder right away then. She I might have to hide it or something, like <laughs> hoard it in the basement, a little treasure chest. Speaking of having it every day, but mm-hmm. uh, no, I uh, thanks for listening to the podcast as always. Thanks for all of your support. And conferences are coming up, so be aware of that. If you haven't registered already, hmm, you might have missed the boat. <laughs> they yeah, might be I'm, full. You're limited to what? Washington and Illinois. Okay. Yeah. You don't get to go to the palatial uh, estates of Minnesota. Fourth of July in Northfield, Kansas. Minnesota. Fourth <laughs> of July in Northfield. Who doesn't Who doesn't want to be in Northfield, Minnesota on the Fourth of July? On, at, on the campus of Carleton College. But, uh, no, we we really do. We appreciate all the support we get and all the positive feedback. So keep it up. And uh, thanks for listening. And I hope we pass the edition. See ya. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? 
preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant. And it's delicious.